my fellow Westorians. Welcome to Valar Reread Us for Dunkin' Egg. It's the Sworn Sword Part 2. Let's see what today brings us, eh, my fellow Westorians? This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Dancing Sean of House Beard is with us as usual, along with Ashea, of course. Sean, what are you imbibing today? I'm trying a, a new drink, actually. So Naked has one called Green Machine, which has, you know, apple juice and pear, stuff you might expect. It also has like broccoli and garlic and spinach. It's uh, super rich in nutrients, and even if it might sound gross to some of you. But anyway, they also made a blue machine, which has a bunch of berries. Now they have a rainbow machine. Rainbow machine. Which I mixed with Mountain Dew. That is, that is not rainbow. <laughs> yeah, see. Well, when you when you mix it all together, and I think purple is a pretty good one to come out as. So. <laughs> I was going to say, green machine is green. Blue machine yeah. is blue. But rainbow machine, I doubt it actually <laughs> looks like a rainbow in the bottle. Like, that's some high-tech beverage if they're able to pull that off. But anyway, that's pretty cool. As usual, Sean kicks us off with his <laughs> uh, concoction of which no one else can fathom. You know, I, I feel like it's hard to have a drink or a food that no one else has ever had before. But you uh, do that on a regular basis. You have, <laughs> you know, that's part of my thought. Even some drink out there that you like or is popular, it's still designed to appeal to the masses or at least some group of the masses, right? What are the chances that they put the exact ratio of citrus acid, citric acid and sugar and whatever that I want? I can figure out. What I want. <laughs> and so can you. <laughs> We we can I can see the future ten years from now when Sean <laughs> has started his own customizable beverage company Ooh. where everyone you <laughs> you press a button and the can just makes the drink in in the moment. Mm. What do you think I do at those machines when you can like select the dip, the sodas where you like pick? Oh, you yeah. think I just like put plain old Coke in there? No, I don't suppose you would. <laughs> I don't suppose. <laughs> You probably ex caused a few explosions in your day. <laughs> don't. Sh yeah. <laughs> they're still, they don't know it was me. They're still tracking you down. The, the carbonation the bandit. <laughs> he's, still, he's wanted in 30 states. <laughs> That's the real reason Sean moved from Georgia to Colorado. <laughs> the beverage cops were on to you. It's not safe for me on that side of the Mississippi. <laughs> 
So we're <laughs> going to have another great episode today. There's a lot of fun stuff in that we've discovered to talk about, as well as some of the things you would expect us to talk about, to delve into with extra details. More parallels, more history, more zooming in on these small level details. Okay, yeah, Shay reminds us, shirt talk. Well, I've got my D- Dwight Schrute, Schrute Farms beat shirt on, which I thought was appropriate because we've got farmers and farming and stuff today. If only Dwight had a barley corn or a... <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's <laughs> actually the other... any beets here. Yeah, <laughs> Melons. I've got and... I found this cool website called History of Westeros and they have shirts. <laughs> it's like a red and white logo and this shirt has red and white Fairwood branch on it. It's pretty awesome. Nice. Yeah, you can find those. There's a link on our website, historyofwesteros.com, or you can go directly to historyofwesteros.threadless.com. We have those shirts and a good set shirt. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope you all decide you want to get one and we'll see you wearing one at a con someday. Or just, you know, take your take a picture of yourself and put it on social media. We'll we'll happily retweet that. <laughs> We're, uh, we're easy that way. Matt Reese says, History of Westeros, 25 years ago today, a Game of Thrones was published. I did not realize that. Today yeah. is the actual day Game of Thrones was published. I really, that's the kind of thing you would expect me to know, but I didn't. So thanks, Matt Reese. Good looking out. That's awesome. 25 years. What's the 25-year anniversary? Is that the, is that the silver and a gold is 50, right? What's, what's 25? I thought it was silver. I think it's silver. Yeah. It silver? yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty cool. Way to go, George R. R. Martin. Way to go, Game of Thrones. Let's all, let's all take a moment to be thankful for this fandom. It's really a wonderful thing. 25 years is a pretty long time. That's really cool. I had no idea. How many? I guess 50 is gold, 25 is silver. So probably, I don't know, 75 is diamond. I wonder if 10 is like, I don't know. It's probably not aluminum or might be. Bronze. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder what the wonder what the blood anniversary is. <laughs> <laughs> in Westeros, they have the Valerian Steel anniversary. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So let's also start off with a comment from our good friend and occasional guest, Jim McGeehan, a.k.a. something like a lawyer. Well, actually, uh, perhaps I should say something like a lawyer. Because he says <laughs> here that, that the Sworn Sword is like a medieval Western and he'll fight anyone that disagrees. And I don't want to fight Jim, so I will agree. But I, I actually do agree, <laughs> not just because of the, because uh, I would lose that fight, but because I agree. <laughs> I do agree, but I want to fight him. So. <laughs> That's a really good take. Yeah, like he, he makes a comparison. You know, we, we talked about, uh, Nina brought up and other folks as well brought up how Ivanhoe is a great inspiration. You brought that up too for the hedge knight or at least the tournament part of it and well yeah you've got a lot of the things here like water rights and showdowns and things like that so how does that strike you sean he mentioned the movie high noon have you seen high noon because yeah. i haven't seen high noon so i was a little lost when he mentioned that to me but it, it's it, it, it builds up to a duel yeah by the way yeah uh you know i had it hadn't occurred to me but when you mention it it, it does have some similarities high noon i think of as one of maybe two or three sort of archetype westerns yeah and it's not an action movie uh it's it's a small town if i remember the gist of it is that um you know a bad guy from the past is coming back to town and so the sheriff realizes there's going to be trouble he's trying to get up a posse to keep this guy out of town and no one wants to do it 
And he, and he was about, it was like, it's like the day before his retirement, he's about to get married and move and retire, but he has this one last thing he has to do and no one wants to help him. Sort of, I just have to do it anyway. Oh. I just have to go fight this guy to protect the town, even if they're not willing to help me out. I'm trying to do it for them. I'm not, but yeah, I think it's, uh, I'm not used to stories about people retiring and, you know, not wanting to continue with their work. <laughs> that hasn't ever been a plot line in anything, right? <laughs> what is it? One last mission. Yeah. This time is personal. It's totally, yeah, it totally sounds like Lethal Weapon or, yeah, like a lot of other movies. But to be right. fair, like I said, this is, I mean, this movie is from 1950 ish. You know, it, it, it's not like following tropes, it's establishing them. That's cool. Right on. So, wait, who's the star? Is that a. I think it would have Cary Grant. Okay. Uh, yes, that's... I'm hesitant. I'm, I, that might not be right. I'm not sure. But, I, I, but it was someone famous, you know. So let's talk about Eustace Osgray. He's our place to start today. He's the old lion. He segues us into a, title, uh, into a, a tale of the little lion, which segues us into a tale of the Osgrays as a family, which, of course, their sigil is the lion, the checky lion. So we have this great quote. As the brown knight launched into the tale, he sat listening intently with his chin up and his shoulders back, as upright as a lance. In his youth, Sir Eustace Osgray must have been the very picture of chivalry, tall and broad and handsome. Time and grief had worked their will on him, but he was still unbent, a big-boned, broad-shouldered, barrel-chested man with features as strong and sharp as some old eagle. His close-cropped hair had gone white as milk, but the thick mustache that hid his mouth remained an ashy gray. His eyebrows were the same color, the eyes beneath a paler shade of gray, and full of sadness. So the very picture of chivalry, this is a thing that we keep coming back to, the concept of chivalry and the good and bad of it, because obviously it's not a bad thing, but it's not a perfect thing. There's a lot of negatives to chivalry, but it certainly has good things too. So one thing looking good has its own rewards in life. It's a fine thing to aspire to, nothing wrong with that. But of course, you can go too far with that. You can make too much out of someone's appearance. You can assume they're a good person just because they look nice. It's the old looks can be deceiving cliche, which is pretty accurate thing in the world. It's beyond just being a cliche. So what I would think of here is he thinks of Eustace in his prime, what he must have looked like in his prime. He's probably the kind of guy that everyone would have made assumptions about. Him. This is a really great man. A real, but really, he's, he's not. He's not a bad guy, right? We've been over that. He's flawed, but decent in some ways. Uh, very much wrapped up in his tradition kind of a relic himself, something we'll get into. Posture is a great example of that. Maybe the best example. He's upright as a lance. And humans respond to posture. Like in nature, it looks great to have a straight spine. But let's not go overboard here. Your spine has nothing to do with your ethics or your goodness, right? Nothing like that at all. So it's a good example of something we can kind of be fooled by in, in just with our own subconscious someone who stands up straight. It's something Hollywood puts a lot of effort into making sure people have good posture. It's why, one of the reasons why you have a lot of people who are on the shorter end, uh, like Tom Cruise, Sylvester Stallone. These are kind of short guys, and it's, it's easier to have good posture when you're shorter. So that's a thing. 
what does this line mean to you, Sean, this, this presentation? I noticed for fun, some old eagle reminds me of that guy from, from the Muppets, that eagle character, Sam Eagle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> kind of stern, maybe a little stubborn. Yeah. Stuck in the old ways, yeah. You know, I always picture Eustace as being really small for some reason. Mm. And it isn't until I reread that that I was like, oh, yeah, he is not a small man. He's got a barrel chair. Yeah, he's a big guy, yeah. A lot of times there's this, this instinct, whether it's our perception or how things are presented to us, some grizzled old man from a bygone era to be looked at with a certain amount of respect, you know. And partly that's maybe because it was tougher times, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everyone didn't, you know, yeah, I guess at this point in time, even a bygone era, you did still have air conditioning and, you know, cities <laughs> or whatever, you know. But, you know, some grizzled old cowboy, a Clint Eastwood character or whatever, you know, they, they're living through tough times. They, they probably are mostly hungry. You know what I mean? They probably spend most of their time hungry, dealing with hot weather, you know, out, out in the wilderness. You know, they, they sort of have to be tough to, to survive, much less thrive in these conditions. And there's this instinct to want to think well of them for that toughness. But that toughness doesn't equate to niceness or fairness necessarily. Like, Maybe sometimes it does, you know, maybe sometimes the tough person understands better someone else's struggle and is more willing to help them, which often is what Clint Eastwood characters would be doing, you know, but not necessarily. Sometimes that tough person like eh, thinks less of you for not being as tough as they are and ridicules or thinks it's I can take something for you because you don't deserve it because you're not tough enough, you know. Like Stannis. Stannis isn't a a taker, but he is someone that that Davos thinks Stannis doesn't understand weakness. And he and he's yeah. not kind toward that. He doesn't he doesn't conceptualize it properly. And I have an instinct myself to to disregard tradition. I feel like we should just figure out what's good and right and efficient, and not worry about what we've always done. But also, I understand there is something to it. Even if I don't like it, I realize it's important to some people. And there's lots of things I don't like that are important to other people. That I the things that are important to me that other people might not like. I hope. Everyone doesn't just disregard them, you know? Yeah. And also there is some value to tradition, even if there may be some better way to do things or better way to look at things, there's often disruption in the changeover. So I can see why there might be a, a reason or even a good reason to slow the transition, to make sure we're doing it right, to make sure everyone's okay with it. Yeah. So on some level, we see that Eustace is maybe a little too stuck in the past, but also I can understand why he would be. And some things about him being stuck in a past are like personal to his family or his honor, his tradition, maybe even the stability of his land, right? Like this is my water and I make sure these crops grow and I don't want anything to mess that all up. But other things about his tradition doesn't want a woman to be in charge. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so there's some good with the bad. Yeah. Very good said, Sean. There's a, it fits really well with what we're building on here with this subtopic too, because one thing I really wanted to get at, was how, yeah, he is very much a, a man trapped in, in traditions. And a lot of these traditions are things of the past. They were good, perhaps, during their time. But the times have changed. And one of the major, major things that's changed is what the job of House Osgrey was. They were the marshals of the North March. Had you heard of the North March? No, of course you hadn't. Because it's not a thing anymore. <laughs> it's a border... <laughs> that doesn't exist. They were defenders of a border that existed for 
maybe thousands of years, probably maybe, probably not thousands, but hundreds of years, maybe maybe a couple thousand. So they were, that was a really important role they held for a long time. They're defending the border against the West, which we're about to get our example of one of the most famous examples of a border defense that's memorized or remembered by, uh, memorialized rather, by the Osgrays. And there's just no need for that anymore. The Lannisters aren't invading. They're not going to invade. And, you know, barring a huge change in the political situation, they're all part of one realm. It's like... The only reason the Lannisters aren't invading, Aziz, is because of the strength of House Osborne. (laughs) (laughs) I got it backwards. I totally have it backwards. They're totally scared. They're quivering. (laughs) <laughs> they're like, they'll throw blackberries at us. <laughs> <We won't. laughs> they're going to send Watt, Watt, and Watt against us. What will we do? <laughs> the Lannisters aren't going to go near the stench of Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> fear the brown. Yes, they do fear the brown. So it's a pretty interesting thing. George has really built a lot here to tear down. It's like he's built this up to show how it's falling apart. It's He's really good at that. George is really good at showing declines and and era's ending and these pieces that remain. It's interesting, too, that he's called an eagle because eagles are another great example, especially if you're American. Uh, that's our, you know, national animal. Eagles are a little sketchy, though. <laughs> they look pretty awesome. But they're, I don't know, like 20% of their diet is stolen food. Like, you know, they just take it from other from other animals. Like, they let the animal do the killing and then take it from them, which is a pretty appropriate symbol for, like, lords taxing you too much, right? Like, they, you do the work and then they come in and, and get the, the credit yeah, and yeah, the, that's very the good. benefits. So, so that's a good example. Like, eagles as a symbol for American independence and, and dominance is like, well, if you actually look at the behavior of an eagle, it's more about this symbol is more based on how eagles look than how they act, right? <laughs> I seem to remember that Ben Franklin wanted to wanted it to be a turkey and not an eagle. Oh yeah, he didn't want this sort of dominant warlike predator to be our symbol. He wanted a, the turkey maybe a symbol of bountifulness. I guess I'm not, I don't know you all know, the details, but a kind of random thing that I learned, which is that most of the time when they use the sound of an eagle. When a, sh- a show or a movie or what have you needs to have the sound of an eagle, they use the sound of a hawk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just a better sound. Yeah. Hmm. I prefer they use the sound of a crow. <laughs> and the fighting strength of a crow. <laughs> so it's very appropriate for Eustace's introduction that he himself is a bit of a relic. And the first time we see him, he's tending to the even older relics that he himself is perhaps like becoming a part of. So here's another, another quote. The solar's thick gray walls were hung with rusted weaponry and captured banners, prizes from battles fought long centuries ago and now remembered by no one but Ser Eustace. Half the banners were mildewed and all were badly faded and covered with dust. Their once bright colors gone to gray and green. This is emphasized by a scene we probably won't get to today, but I want to jump ahead just for a minute to describe the, this moment when Dunk actually gets to Cold Moat and they're like, who are you? And he says where he's from. One of the people there, I forget who, and it's not sarcasm. 
he just honestly is like, oh, Boz Craze, they're still there? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, man. (laughs) Like, geez, like they've actually, not only are they forgotten, but they're like, literally forgotten. (laughs) It's not just a metaphor. Like, he's actually forgotten. And that's just, wow, that's pretty sad. Because this guy's like, we'll show him we still have claws. We'll do this and that. And they're like, wait, who are you again? Like, oof. You know, uh, going over this again, something I, I wondered at first because you know I'm looking like I feel like I mentioned this before. Martin doesn't put things in a randomly. Pretty much every word, every scene, every moment has some sort of meaning behind it. And that fly buzzing around Eustace when he's telling the story, it's like I wonder what that. Why? Why did Martin stick that in there? And I took note by the way, it flies keep being mentioned over and over again yeah. in the story. It comes up fifteen or twenty times or something. Maybe in slightly different contexts each time, but I realize it's almost obvious now what's going on here. What, two things. One, something is bugging Osgrey. Something's <laughs> bugging Eustace. Like he's irked by this thing. You know, the fly represents maybe this annoyance of try, trying to figure this out. And remember when he kind of like decides what to do, he smashes the fly, right? So, yeah. But at the same time, Flies also, and at the beginning of the story, the flies were lingering around death. And that's yes. many of the other times when it comes up, flies hover near death. And uh, Eustace and his house are near death. So. They really are. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's he has literally no heir, uh, not even like a cousin that we know of. So you're right. Also, at the end, once there's sort of a resolution between Eustace and Lady Rohan, yeah. D- Dunk observes the flies are gone. Oh, good call. Good call. Mm-hmm. Also, so there's that moment with the tree cat. We can jump ahead to talk about that, which is, I was wondering, and you were wondering, a lot of us were wondering what, yeah. it's a pretty clear symbolism moment there because it's just so distinct and there's really nothing else going on. And someone even says, I wonder what killed it. And it's... yeah. <laughs> I'm less sure about how to. I, I haven't c- concluded what I think about this yet. Well, let's 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 talk through it a little bit. Maybe we'll figure a little more of it out and chat you all weigh in. Because yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. Symbolism. When I when I started this podcast, my not understanding of symbolism was pretty minor, and I've gotten a lot better at it. But I don't think I'm great at it. Uh, and I think what I'm pretty good at is noticing patterns. So I detect that symbolism is there. But actually interpreting it, that's something I'm, it's kind of, I'm a kind of a work in progress as, a, as an analyst in that. Uh, and I've learned a lot from other people in this fandom and just by paying more attention, doing rereads and really trying to focus on it. Uh, my first instinct is that it's, it's a cat. Uh, so it's similar to a lion. Like it would be a little too on the nose if it was an actual lying, lion dying, yeah. there, right? Um, and out of place. Yes, out of place. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, he doesn't know what killed it, which is very very much accurate to how Eustace doesn't understand why his house has declined. He's d- is lost as to what's gone wrong. He's also, and seemingly his ancestors were as well. Like it's been this long decline, long series of failures, a lot because they're holding on to a reality that isn't there anymore. Uh, perhaps because this tree cat can't exist in this environment anymore. It says, I, I thought they were all gone. I thought these tree cats didn't live here anymore because this wood doesn't support them. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like this, this relic of the past that just doesn't yeah, belong yeah. anymore. So I feel like I'm dancing around maybe the, the center of it, but I, I think a lot of that's at least maybe cl- kind of close. 
Um, yeah, I think you're pretty much just, I think sometimes when you do just start talking about it out loud, you're like, oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did have the thought that is the tree cat like a symbol of a lion? And uh, I, I was thinking maybe the tree part of the tree cat was like dunk because a tree is a sigil. Hmm. But but they, I think at one point they did talk about how there used to be aurochs in that forest, mm-hmm. but no more, yeah. you know? So the more I think about it, it's just the, the terrain the landscape, you know, on more levels than one has changed. And he still hasn't quite recognized it. He's still kind of in his own little world and flashes of reality don't quite sink in, you know. Maybe even uh, being infested with maggots and stinking. Hmm. Sir Bennis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Certainly there's rot in the uh, in there. And Bennis could be like an extension of that as well as to just, you know, expressing their their long decline here. Nina had another point. She says it's the tree cat representing Eustace himself. The, the tree cat is an apex predator with no rivals. And just like lions uh, often are in the world, wherever they exist, they're, they're often, if not always, the apex predator. And, well, their environment no longer supports this apex predator. The, it's a good example of how the world works. Like, when you don't, these megafauna don't exist anymore because this, the globe can't support them. Uh, and it's the same reason we don't have uh, saber-toothed tigers or a lot of these huge predators that don't exist anymore is because uh, the environment doesn't support them. And that's very much what happened. Westeros doesn't support this martial house defending a border that doesn't exist anymore. His environment is gone. Good, sad Nina. That, that does fill out the metaphor even more. I like that. Also, just sticking with that forest, it's really interesting too the the notion that a lot of it's been cleared away and how that's a you know part of the nostalgia. But it's also a good thing because he he points out that only the king and the checky lion could hunt in these woods. Now, what good is that? Like, who's going to sit here amongst you and Ashea and and our listeners and say, yes, that's the right way. It should only be for the king and the Lord. (laughs) Like, I don't think any of us are like, that's the right way (laughs) to do it. So when we hear that the forest is being cleared, we're like, okay, well, maybe we don't want the forest being cleared. But when it's cleared for farms, for supporting people, like, yeah, that's the kind of, that's, that's the kind of progress we can get behind, I think, because it's giving people food and, and, and plenty and, and, you know, fertility. Those are good things. People need to eat. I mean, that's just straightforward. And you like the land being used for everyone rather than just the king and the Lord. Like, that's, that's a good Yeah, progress. you could see maybe some concern of overhunting, right? Yeah. They might just decimate the population. And so maybe you need to limit it but it seems unfair to limit it to the rich people. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Especially because it's like ridiculous to say only the king can hunt there. Like the king doesn't live anywhere near there. I mean, it's like... <laughs> yeah, he's the one at least needs it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like all yeah. the woods of Westeros belong to the king. He's least near it. And yeah. yeah, talk about distribution of wealth. I mean, you get into that topic, it's a big topic, but this is like absurd. Like all the woods in the whole country, everywhere. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> so yeah, Um so let's talk about this little lion. Uh, he, it's, we'll lead into it with saying, you know, he's a, he's a keeper of this history. But one of the problems here, Nina writes, he's a man obsessed with nostalgia, a man who can't see how a memory of past glory has driven his family into the ground. He sees all the awesomeness of the past, but is blind to the aspects of it that are leading them to have fallen behind. Like this obsession with the past is part of the problem. It's fine to 
have nostalgia. Heck, I love history, but history is history. It's gone. It's something to learn from. It isn't now. It, you can't make it now. And that's, uh, that seems to be Osprey's problem. So this little lion story, it, it, he really puffs up and gets excited talking about it. It's kind of a David Goliath story, but more brutal because in this, you know, David and Goliath both die here. There's no, you know, David's like, yeah, I won. You're like, no, there, it was a tragic sacrifice type story. So it's, it's a little bit of a conundrum as to when this happened, right? Because this, the presence of the sword Bright Roar is a little bit like the presence of the sword Ice in, or perhaps Lady Forlorn in, in tales that come before Valyrian Steel came to Westeros. So hmm. we know that there's a, a sword called Ice before the Valyrian Steel version of it. Like they re, renamed it, like this was our ancestral sword. Now we've got a fancier version, so we're going to call this one Ice. And that could be what happened here, or it could just be, my best guess is Sir Eustace is just conflating history, just assuming the Lannister had this sword back then because they've had it for so long, or they had it for so long. But I'm pretty sure that he didn't have uh, Bright Roar at this time. Is it possible Martin didn't have this timeline hashed out at the time he wrote this, you know? It is possible, but I don't think so because like even like Ice... The, this, the timeline of ice was established really early in a Game of Thrones. Like it said, you know, 400 years or something like that. So it's possible. But uh, since we can attribute it to a, a narrator who's already established as unreliable, that, that seems to work better for me than just blaming yeah, it on yeah. the author. Like it could be George didn't flesh it out, but we know Eustace is, gets some details wrong. So to me, that just fits better. But you obviously, you know, believe what you want here. And of course, it could have been told to him wrong. Someone could have passed the story down yeah. him wrong. And just like he doesn't question a lot of other things about their traditions, why would he question this story? It just doesn't, he, his mind doesn't go there. It's to him, it's like a hallowed, sacred thing. He doesn't question it. No, it's just, it's something to take pride in and all that. I really like the idea of an unreliable narrator. They're not necessarily being dishonest. They just might not know the truth of it or, yeah. or have a bias or whatever else. You know? That's like all any book of history you read, like literally yeah. anything yeah. is subject to these restrictions or these mistakes. Human error creeps into every single thing. And then that, you know, snowballs uh, because sometimes the people who quote the original sources don't know the flaws in the original sources and assume that they're rock solid. But hey, we're all dealing with incomplete information on on a lot of history like that. But it is a, it is a really good story. Lancel IV is a known figure. He uh, had beheaded the Ironborn King Harold Half-Drowned. Nina writes, uh, add some of the history here. There was the Battle of Land's Point. The history says, in the World of Ice and Fire, it says he later died in the Battle of Red Lake whilst attempting to invade the Reach. Yet again, it's a sad moment. It's not expressed in this story, but by looking to a maesterly source in the world, it's one of the, the extensions, one of the benefits of George writing his history in world rather than giving a narrator perspective, is that the maester doesn't care about this Wilbert character, about the little uh, lion. It's not an important historical note from his perspective. So it's up to Eustace to remember that, and we're left to think that, yeah, this stuff is going to die with him. It could be written down. Like someone could have written this down, but that's part of their decline as well. The fact that he's a landed knight and not a lord means no maester, right? If he had a maester, 
He could charge this maester with writing all this stuff down, and then it would be remembered. But even he doesn't even have that. That hurts. <laughs> I wish that you know he could write it down himself, or I, I don't know, have yeah. Venice, or maybe maybe they can't read, or they don't think that's their duty. But I mean, maybe you do something that's not your duty to preserve your legacy. I don't know. Really prioritize <laughs> your history. I think yeah. to be honest, and he has savings too. We know yeah. like he has some, maybe not enough for a maester. And maybe he should have done this farther go, but maybe again, it's just his stubbornness or or uh, closed mindedness about the reality of the world. He doesn't at this point. He might be starting to realize it, but it's too late, or he doesn't want to admit that it's going to happen. But uh, I mean, I guess he thought his sons would eventually commission such a thing. That's true. Yeah, yeah. maybe he's. Just- but it's not like his sons just died two weeks ago, and he hasn't had time to figure this That's out. True, they died you know? a while back. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Uh, but, you know, another thought, though, let's say he did say he did hire a maester and got all this written down or did it himself or whatever. Then what? It, then he dies and there's just some book in his castle that yeah. people barely know the castle's even there, much less that the histories are stored. Well, I guess he, you know? he has it taken to the Citadel and then hopefully, you know, maybe someday. It gets, I mean, yeah. Or he reads it in his old age. He has people reread it as he gets Alzheimer's, essentially, yeah. de- you know, dementia. I think about this a lot, actually, just because I love sentimentality. And saving things and history and old photos and all of that sort of thing. I'm like, who on earth is going to care about this in a hundred years? I don't know anyone. Someone might. You never know. Like, yeah, I guess you just never know. Like, there's a lot of history that was written down by people in the real world that maybe didn't seem important at the time that maybe became important later. Uh, I'm unable to think of a specific example off the top of my head. Right here in Duncan Egg. This would be an example. This is kind of a notable story. Egg was part of it. Egg on the fifth was part of what happened here with the Osgrave. That's true. Yeah, I have a note here later for when he's discussing, he's like, make our anvil and the hammer, blah, blah, blah. Too much is made out of them. He's like, do you realize the that the anvil's kid is like right here? <laughs> <laughs> That's the anvil's son right there. <laughs> oh, yeah. So... So this is what I was saying to lead into this part. And, and Nina adds to this here. She says, it's on the nose, but nevertheless important that the physically crumbling and degrading castle of Standfast mimics the dynastically crumbling house Osgrave. Just as Standfast, quote, stood bravely atop a rocky hill and could be seen for leagues around. And Sir Eustace himself is unbent, big bone, broad shouldered, you know, all that powerful as an old eagle, prideful, you know, good bearing. But this is just, a lot of that is just appearance, right? Uh, when you get close to it, stand, it's, it's described Stan Vassal is a castle only by courtesy. We have black stone at the base, which conjures up images of the high tower and, and the black stone that we went over in the, the portion of the Great Empire of the Dawn about strange stone around the world. There isn't necessarily evidence this is that kind of strange stone, but no one actually takes a close look at it, so you never know. But it is more notable here that Newer graystone and turrets deliberately clash with the older symbols, right? You've got mm, old stuff and new stuff sort of mixed together. It really sets the tone pretty nicely here. But it is... I can't believe I didn't think of this before. Remember that a portion was rebuilt? Yeah. Near turrets on that side, but not on the other side? Mm-hmm. It's a blind spot. <laughs> this kind of has a blind oh, spot. Yeah, it's this piece good. of the world you just can't see. Yeah, that is good. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. And it is bigger than it appears too, which is maybe uh, if you're really reaching for symbolism, it's like there's more to it than it seems. There's more history here than it looks like. Uh, there's 
There's always more than, than the story than, than the story that we know. It says its deep vaults and cellars occupied a good part of the hill in which it perched. Above ground, the tower boasted four stories. Yeah, it's, they actually do spend some time down there when they recruit those villagers. They get to sleep down there in the cellar. It seems like that would be a place to hang out more often. It's cool down there, you know? This is where they're at now. They have this tower house with st- several stories. They used to have several castles. There was a cadet branch. They were, they could marry their own cousins. <laughs> because there isn't, was that, isn't that everyone's goal? Yeah, isn't that enough? <laughs> isn't that everyone's goal? Make a family so big that you could marry your cousins. <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't call that incest in their time. We call it incest, but it wasn't even like it was beyond like what the, the Targaryen levels. So that's apparently that's the the threshold you have to clear. I just wanted to say that, you know, you're talking about how it's bigger than it appears and it's vaults and all that. Yeah. It really made me think of Castamir and oh. just that as a, I guess, you know, really Cast with the Rock covers that too. Just that being kind of the style of castle that they have yeah. uh, in some places that it happens. All three are lion houses. That's true. The lions love their caves. Mm. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> that. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. Just use what's already there. Use the ground, you know, use the cool, natural cooling of the earth. So they should keep Tywin Lannister away from the opening to stand for us. <laughs> <laughs> we do meet an Osgray in Fire and Blood, Clarice Osgray, Clarice, who is stated to be an aunt to Unwin Peak. Unwin Peak, of course, one of the great villains of Fire and Blood. And I mean, great, like, he's quite a villain, not he's great. <laughs> uh, but not a man to mess with. And it's not, she may have been a peak by birth who wed Lord Osgray. It's not clear. That's Nina's guess. And I tend to go with her guesses on these things because she, she understands them pretty well. But it is a guess. Uh, so it's not a sure thing. Now, but Gildane lists the Osgrays in... Fire and Blood, right next to a lot of other powerful houses. Redwine, Rowan, Costain, Oakheart, Florent, Hightower. So as they suggested, as used to suggest, they were a big house. They were like well-known. They were famous. And if you had four castles, then yeah, you would be. But it's not explained what caused them to lose most of their castles and land. It's, it's described as just a long decline other than cold mode itself being taken by Magor for speaking out against uh, his actions against the faith. So if you use the, the wall as an example, the wall's decline began at the same time Eustace says the, their decline, uh, House Osgrave began, which is right after the conquest. The king's peace, a great, great thing. It stopped a lot of the realm from fighting itself. But the little downside is things like this. Eustace Osgray, his house, all of a sudden their their ancestral job, their place in the world is gone. Same thing at the wall. Uh, You had, at the time of the Field of Fire, 30,000 or 20,000 men were on the wall. 300 years later, it's down to a few hundred. That's a massive decline in a short period of time, given that it was thousands of years of basically staying the same. The big change was related. When you have wars like this, when you have constant war, or at least frequent war between the different seven kingdoms, whether it's the the West fighting the Stormlands, or the Stormlands invading the Reach, or two of them ganging up on another, when it's all said and done, the losers get a bunch of people sent to the wall. 
well, the king's peace meant these miniature wars weren't happening anymore. Well, all of a sudden, you got a lot fewer people going to the wall. All of a sudden, the wall starts to decline because it's not fancy anymore. You don't have people sending money anymore. You don't have people like, oh, my cousin's on the wall. We're going to send him. So 25 other houses in this one region have a cousin on the wall. So they're all sending a little bit of wealth up there. It all helps the wall's economy, little things like that. Just all that's gone now. I dream of the day when the military of the world declines because <laughs> there's so much peace. Yeah, right? Like you're right. That's a great point. I mean, it's, this is, Osgrey is, it's sad that his house is declining, but it's a good thing. It's a sign of less war. He has martial identity. He's, he's, his traditional identity is tied into being a house that fights an enemy that doesn't exist anymore, or they're not an mm-hmm. enemy anymore. So he, this is the, the thing he hasn't accepted, that they're like, you guys are warriors, but who, who are you fighting? Who is there to fight? Like, <laughs> even the Dornish aren't, aren't there to fight anymore because they've joined the realm. So that's, that's a larger scale version of what's happened to the Osgrays. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but I think that all the time, every, any park you go to, any state capital, it, there's always these monuments. There's always like these cannons and these soldiers. And like, why can't it be scientists and writers? Why, aren't, <laughs> why isn't that who we're memorializing? You know? Yeah, I mean, we can memorialize the soldiers also, right? Like if they fought yeah, for our yeah. freedoms, absolutely that's worth remembering 100%. But there were other, like you said, there were other people who did important deeds as well. Now, I say this as <laughs> having been in the army myself, yeah. I still, I, I would rather someone make a statue of Albert Einstein than a statue of me or Douglas MacArthur or whoever. Yeah, I, and you're right. That does give you more credibility. Having been in the military, you get your your words ring louder. You have more authority to say such a thing. So I'm glad to hear it from you. Uh, so after all that, after four castles, they have a tower house and what's considered three villages. So they used to have a score of lesser lordlings and now one of these villages they go to as an example, the seven are drawn in charcoal at the sept. I mean, this is <laughs> low, low cost buildings here. Now, I think this is not typical for medieval life. It's not atypical. It's not like something you wouldn't see. It's not like George is like making something up. But remember, these are villages ruled by a lord in decline who isn't even a lord anymore. So well, I think what we're meant to believe is that villages, yeah, given there's a drought and the sickness, it's, it's bad everywhere. But the Red Widow, for example, her villages are doing a lot better than this. They're not like all, her peasants are a little more educated. They have better and nicer stuff. They're not doing great, but they're doing better than this. So keep that in mind. This is, this is the- Even this drought is relatively new. Yeah. It's not like they used to have this great sept and now the drought ruined their sept. Yeah, <laughs> good point, good point. Uh, Rolling Night from our flick, channel points out that this is similar to what we see with the, the kind of low-cost sept that was built near where Kat went um, before in Clash of Kings when she comes down to the Stormlands and she's near Storm's End and she goes off to pray nearby. And they find a, a, a similar sort of, I don't want to say cheap, that's the wrong impression, but it's, it's not the kind of place she's used to as a high lady or whatever. And it's a similar sort of vibe here. Julie A, with the great take, she says, Dunk knows that the peasants are glad to have a Septon visit, but also hated the Septon's visit because they had to feed him. And, well, just one more mouth to feed is a lot, especially at a time like this. So here's, as promised, we have Septon Maribald quotes 
Here's a particular uh, example saying just what Julie was talking about. Those he visited were expected to feed and shelter him, but most were as poor as he was. So Mary Bull could not linger long in one place, could not linger in one place too long without causing hardship to his hosts. Now he's aware of that. He's taking care not to eat important levels of food away from whoever he's visiting. Contrast to, say, Ramsey Bolton, who eats the stouts out of, you know, their winter stores just because he wants to have a party, even though they were unsuccessful with their mission. They're celebrating failure, you know. <laughs> um, and so eight of them, out of three villages, there's just only eight dudes who are able-bodied. And, the, you know, even that is... Yeah, <laughs> dubious. Uh, dubious. Yeah, good, good choice, yeah. So And courtesy only. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm not trying to like rag on them, but like they're really scraping the bottom trying to find people who are capable of fighting here. These are guys with no training or experience. And well, this first, there's another part of the line from Maribald here, and it's particularly the second part of this quote that we want to think about in terms of these folk here. Broken men are more deserving of our pity, though they may be just as dangerous. Almost all are common-born, simple folk, who had never been more than a mile from the house where they were born until the day some lord came round to take them off to war. That's exactly what's happening here, right? I mean, this is a dead-on description. George hadn't written this part yet, right? A Feast for Crows wasn't written yet, although it's entirely possible he had written this part. And just, you yeah. know, the book hadn't, Feast for Crows hadn't been published yet, but he may have been writing some of this simultaneously, you know, kind of going back and forth, like, oh, this, this stuff is really good. I can use it in two places here. I can borrow and, and expand on this really powerful theme. But... Man, it's just... Especially keeping in mind what you got or what Nina pointed out that Jim has said. Yeah. Is that this is something Martin would have witnessed in the world, the draft for Vietnam. You're very good point. Yeah. Um, this is maybe something we'll have Jim talk about a little more if we can have him on, if we can get that arranged. But yeah, George himself was a conscientious objector. He was drafted into Vietnam and didn't have to go um, because of that. And uh, I mean... He, George said he would have fought in World War II. Like, he believed in that cause because that's, I mean, we were, the U.S. was attacked. That's a totally different scenario. It's a lot more directly understandable why someone would make that distinction, one war versus the other. Uh, Nina writes, while it's true that the medieval army would not have relied so exclusively or heavily on untrained, unwashed peasants, George would have seen in his own experience of observing the Vietnam draft, ordinary men without any kind of military training just pulled, to their, pulled from their homes very young, don't understand what's going on, probably only know Vietnam as like a word, right? Like they don't much know about the country. This is obviously pre-internet. So you can't just go look up Vietnam. Well, like right now I could go look up Vietnam and learn a lot about it, right? Just pretty easily at my, you know, I wouldn't get, it wouldn't be contextual. I wouldn't understand the people or how they live, but I would learn a lot just by that. And they didn't even have that. You know, somebody could go to their local library. And then there would be even less context. Yeah. I think this is probably reading a, a book yeah. about Vietnam written by some dude who hasn't been there, you know, quite possibly. Or I was picturing them. Or by a French conqueror. Yeah. <laughs> I was picturing just going to the encyclopedia. Yeah. <laughs> and even that's not a sure thing. Like we, one of our favorite examples, the, the author, Robert E. Howard. Yeah. The guy who wrote Conan. He lived, he, he grew up in a small town of like 2,000 people. He couldn't even go really to the library to look at books. I mean, this is, he, he really had to use his imagination. So we really take for granted a lot of times just the, the amount of information we have at the tip of our fingertips, these tip of our fingertips, at our, at our fingertips <laughs> these days. Uh, but George did, yeah, like you said, it's really important to notice that he had, this was firsthand for him. 
he probably had friends that were drafted that didn't have a conscientious objector status or something like that. He almost certainly knew people that were killed. Yeah, I wish I knew more about the details of what exactly it meant to be a conscientious objector, because if it was just that simple, we wouldn't have had people burning their draft cards and fleeing to Canada and literally being arrested for dodging a draft, you know? I think it was his journalism might have had, might have been part of it. I'm not sure, though. Yeah, I don't remember. Mm. I've read about it before, but I don't remember. It's not something that stuck in my head. It said he objected and was fairly quickly granted conscientious objector status with the draft board reasoning that being branded a coward for life would be enough punishment for not serving. Whoops. <laughs> we all know that we call him a coward. <laughs> George is like, I'll, I'll take coward for that, yeah. <laughs> I wonder what, when, if it was earlier or later in the draft. I wonder if early on, they were like, all right, fine, coward. We're not going to make you do it. You just have to suffer with your guilt. But later on, they're like, no, you have to. We need people. You know, I wonder if the, the gear shifted as the war grew. Well, maybe it was the other way around. Maybe toward the end, they're like, man, people are leaving the country. I guess we can't make them, you know? Yeah, know. yeah. So here's where we get into a little subtle history as well. Like I, I said that expecting these guys to win is like expecting each one of them to be like their own little lion, their own little Wilbert Osgray. Now you need a lot more than, than that to, to win this fight. And they argue about whether this is a smart conflict or not. And, and Egg's like, this is a stupid conflict. It's a stupid thing to fight <laughs> over. But he, he says the Blackfire Rebellion wasn't stupid. Um, maybe in some ways it was stupid, I would say. But ro- defending against a rebel, you know, a coup or whatever, that's, that is something more like the difference between Vietnam and World War II, where one is your country has been invaded, and another is you are going off to stop another country from invading another country or interfere with their, whatever you want to put it. it well, they weren't attacking the U.S. In, in terms of Vietnam. A different situation. And that's sort of the same case here, whereas... They weren't even taking our oil. I mean, <laughs> <geez>. <laughs> There's a joke here that, again, Bennis's role in the story is really important. As, as crude and awful as he is, he makes this joke. He says, Eustace should have come to this village and sired more bastards. There would have been more men for to fight for them on this day. Now, it's just a crude joke, but it's it's actually a really important reference because not only is that the reason the Black Fire Rebellion happened in the first place is because Aegon the Fourth just went around, made so many bastards, and then named one of them, you know, gave him the sword, and and the rest is history. But what he's describing isn't uncommon at all. Like lords, kings, just going to villages and taking advantage of of young women who are peasants and can't do anything about it. Like that's not uncommon at all. It's terrible, but it's very much a part of yeah, history. I'm not sure that Venice was joking. You know, no. like he might have legitimately thought that's what I would do if I was a lord. I can't. I don't know why he didn't do that. That's a know? good point, actually. He might not be joking. I might be giving him too much credit. Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't. I don't it know may be that, especially considering everyone's reaction to the the cheek slash, that might be enough that maybe it wasn't okay to just go around raping women. But <laughs> it might not be that hard for a lord in a small community to do it without anyone accusing him of rape. Like, like. Who's going to stop him? Who's going to know? You know, yeah, especially it's dark to think about how much that happened must have happened throughout history. Yeah. And that's where we get into a kind of a controversial topic for for the real world, which is the concept of first night. Uh, most people have heard of it through Braveheart. And uh, well, not most people. A lot of people heard of it through Braveheart. That's where I first heard of it. It's it's of dubious historicity, but not dubious in some ways. There are there it's 
places in Western history where people say it didn't really happen and it's exaggerated. Yet there are places in other parts of the world where it's in, people insist it definitely happened. So I'm not going to say it didn't happen. I tend to believe it did because I'm more cynical about human nature. And I think that if people can get away with yeah. the sort of thing, they would have. And it definitely happened in Westeros. So whether or not, however much it happened in the real world, it definitely happened here. And it, it's brought up here. Remember last time at the end, we had a quote where Ag is like, well, I can teach them about how Jahara, uh, Alisand got Jaharis to end first night. That's exactly the type of concept we're discussing here. First night being the Lord has the right to lay with the bride on her first night before her marriage. It's really awful. This is exactly that sort of thing where they think they have the right to do that and no one can stop them. And that leads us to this, this recurring topic, the education of a king. Eggs being a good kid. But of course... He's got some pride where we have uh, this quote. Egg looked indignant. I have to serve small folk? Not serve, help. We need to turn them into fighters. That's really good. See, Dunk is diplomatic. He knows that even though that's a, he's a good kid, he's still a Targaryen. He's still a son of Makar. So you got to choose your words carefully. And that's, to me, this is a, what you were saying before. That's a really good example of Dunk being the opposite of thick as a castle wall. That is smooth talking right there. Yeah. That is a, that's like Aikido, verbal Aikido right there. <laughs> it's the type of thing you can imagine, even someone who is smart, two days later realizing what they should have said. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. But he, right off the bat, knew what he needed to say, and it works. You know, Egg takes it in and, and moves forward appropriately. It's the kind of thing you see Varus do a lot of, like when he brings news to someone, they're like, well, I should blah, blah, blah. And he's like, blah, blah, blah. You know, and he's like, kind of deflects the, I should have had a ready example, but he does this with Cersei. You'll come up with it two days from now. <laughs> <laughs> There's a exactly. just similar example of, of someone doing that sort of thing, which was asking someone's permission who doesn't usually want to give something up. You're like, do I have your permission to speak to the audience? You know, and so like, oh, okay. I, I, you know, you have to ask me for permission, of course. You're deferring. Yeah. You're deferring yeah, to me. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's a great point. You Good make said. them feel better about it by bringing to the forefront that they are in charge or that you're only doing it because they let you, you know. It, it makes it seem like it was their idea, et cetera. Here's where we get back to the part where we were talking about the forest and we could jump ahead to discuss some of it. So let's, let's have, there's a few odds and ends that we didn't discuss. Uh, so let's take care of that now. One part is that they're worried, Dunk is worried that one spark and this will all go up like tender. He's, of course, means that literally it's, and that does happen. It's pretty direct foreshadowing that this, the story is that the forest will catch fire and blame will be ascribed even though it probably shouldn't because it's so easy to see how a fire could have just started given the, the heat and the, the drought, the dryness and all that. Deterior the deterioration of the relationship here is really important as well because it only would take a little bit, like a little spark to cause a fight, which is what's about to happen. That's what we're what this story is portraying. That spark has happened, which is the dam. Um, that spark could have come in a number of different forms. Any sort of provocation might have worked just because people are so on edge, right? It doesn't... In stabler times among lords that have good relations in the first place, Yeah, Venice, Venice cuts that man's cheek and it's not as big a deal. Yeah. 
But when they're already at odds and resources are thin and, you know, uh, tensions are high or whatever, cutting that cheek was ill done. And it's, it's <laughs> kind of uh, ironical. It's almost, um, almost to use this as advantage that, as we find out, this is jumping ahead a little bit, that Rohan also has issues with their liege lord. Like, both of them don't want, neither of them want to go to Lord Rowan for justice, but for different reasons. It's because one of them, Rohan knows she's on this clock for getting married because her father, like, you know, enforced that rule. And of course, from Eustace's perspective, Rowan was a loyalist and he's a blackfire. So it's like, well, he's not going to help me. He's, he may have even forgotten I exist like those other guys. He would never say that because that's, you know, that's his pride. But it, it might, it's, it's sort of the unspoken truth there. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, let's give a few shout outs and then get to some questions and then part two of part two. (laughs) If you are a patron of History of Westeros, we thank you very much for your support. And if you've considered joining, now's a good time. We have bonus episodes. We have access to scripts. We have occasional shout outs. And of course, we have... You know, real quick, I just want to say something I've realized doing this... uh, this reread of Dunkin' Egg, the value of a search of fire and ice. Oh, man. It's so good to just be able to find that line or that moment or or see if it recurred somewhere else or whatever else. And it realized me that's the value of getting the scripts to your shows, to the History of Westeros shows. You could be like, what does he say about that thing? You can like control F to find stuff, you know? That's true, yeah. And and Google Drive allows you to search multiple documents at once. Um, Our patron benefit of that type is access to our Google Drive. So you can search the whole drive rather than searching individual documents. And you're right. Shout out to searchoficeandfire.com. We are, uh, we try to send them a donation once a year or so because we get a lot of value out of that. And I encourage you all to do the same if you use them. If maybe uh, one day they'll add fire and blood. Yeah, that would be cool. The dream. <laughs> but uh, back in the day before Search of Ice and Fire existed, I would open every single ebook. I would, when I sat, I would sit down to work, I would open a copy of Game of Thrones, open Clash of Kings, open Storm Resorts, Beast of Crows, Dance of Dragons, mm-hmm. all three of the short stories here. And then if I wanted to search for something, I would have to search eight or nine times. <laughs> Unless I was just positive it wasn't in one of them. Like, I'm not going to search for Ned Stark in The Sworn Sword, you know, but... Uh... Oh, okay, so someone said it was Gary Cooper, not Cary Grant for... that. Yeah, for High Noon. For High yeah. Noon. Yeah. Good call, good said, good catch. Thanks for... Thanks, uh, friends in the chat, whoever pointed that out to us. Appreciate that. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Shire Post Mint. If you want to, if you want to get some awesome coins, Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, or otherwise, Roman, Conan. If only they had Ronan, so you could yeah, say Ronan, Roman, Conan, and Ronan. Conan and Ronan, yes. <laughs> of course, uh, Lord of the Rings, Shire Post Mint. That's King Killer Chronicle. After. What's that? King Killer Chronicles. King Killer Chronicles. Yes, yes, yes. Great stuff over there. Check them out. They're, they're really high quality and they also post a lot of fun videos of just their process of like making coins, seeing them get stamped and they have a, they have a great social media presence. They're worth a follow. 
Dornish Dame says that conversation between Duncan Egg reminds me of Donald Noy's talk with John early in a Game of Thrones, making it clear he's privileged and he needs to remember not everyone had the advantages he did growing up. You know, I'm so glad you made that point, Dornish Dame. Not because it's not just because it is a really good take and, and reminding people of of their own privilege. But we have a Donald Noy quote later in this episode. So you are you're just right on here. Mm-hmm. That is a good point. Yeah. The uh people not realizing just how privileged they are. Like, Egg doesn't even know how these people live. He's learning it, and it's important. It's part of his education of a king. Now, here's, uh, here's a little er- a mini earthquake. I'm slightly embarrassed that I didn't know this already. Oh, you didn't really know? I'm so known. sorry, Aziz. I'm sorry? I can't believe you didn't know about this. I, I must have known or forgotten or something. Because I knew, but I kind of thought you guys were both enjoying the debate that we were letting Sean <laughs> do this, or I would have said something way long ago. I was enjoying yeah, the I debate. I can't believe that no one let me know. Uh, yeah, I, that was a little dubious. Yeah, no I'm one said little... anything. So let's get into this real quick, which is that Heather Hare points out that in a Radio Westeros episode where they're covering the Edge Night, that... In a Sospec Martin, George did state that Dunk was not knighted by Sarah Arlen. And this was at a convention in 2004. And I want to state, Sean, you wanted to know more context. And I will say that the source is reliable because we know the source. The source is listed as Stego King. And that is someone we have met in person, a member of the BWB, and not just a member, the previous admin, the previous runner of the the George R. R. Martin fan group. So pretty legit. But yes, you are correct, Sean. We do not know the exact question. Yeah, because, I, I, you know, again, maybe I'm just being stubborn, but I can just imagine, especially if this person b- wants to believe or maybe even knows from personal conversations with George or something that Dunk wasn't. But, the, Dunk, but Martin might still not have given a straight, clear, end-all argument answer, he might have given an answer that this person decided, okay, that's it. Martin said it. it's official that he didn't do it. But I still want to know exactly what the question was and exactly what the answer was. For nothing, for no other reason, it's just a little disappointing that Martin would just end the ambiguity. That's a little surprising I and disappointing to me. kind of figured that it was the kind of thing where they were just all talking and, and he was just like, and so when Dunk lies about being knighted sort yeah. of thing, that it was clear. I, I don't think that Stego was just pulling this out of nowhere. I, I have a lot of trust in his account of it, even though it's just a yeah. one-sentence account. Mm. I do. It's, uh, on several levels, it's disappointing to me. One, because uh, I like the ambiguity. I like the debate. <laughs> I like to be able to, I like, to, I like how well, George, every hint I feel like could go, there's an argument for it either way. Even if it is stronger to one side, I still like that there is, that it could turn out to be the other side and it wouldn't make no sense because of some certain thing. Yeah. But uh, but it's also disappointing because it means Doc lied. <laughs> I want to think of him as this hero. And uh, and the fact is, when I think about it, Brian also lies, right? Sure. Even these most straight good guy here or good person yeah. heroes that we have, they still lie. I mean, and not Ned Stark, Sean. The the icon one of the yeah. iconic good guys yeah. of the series, his whole arc, his whole story is built on a lie. Yeah. 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 He's lying about John's birth. He lies to to save his, his neck and his family, you know, uh before he that doesn't save his neck after all. But uh and you know, d- at the end of this very story, 
Dunk signs a lie in blood. <laughs> Cuts his cheek and swears to Lady Rohan. He's the one that attacked the peasant, not Venice. You know, yeah. he's got good intentions when he lies. He lies in the next book, too, by the way. Yeah. He he maybe an exaggeration, but he tells uh he tells uh Egg that he stole that head off this pike. But really it was one of his friends back at King's Landing. Yeah, it wasn't actually him that's did true. it, you know. So even the most heroic, true, whatever knights uh, still have their their moments of dishonesty. I don't think it's, yeah, I mean, life isn't so simple that you can just tell the truth all the time. You know, it just, yeah. you can't just go around telling kids there's no Santa Claus. You know? <laughs> Here I go with that again. <laughs> I guess that's an example so many times. <laughs> I would like to now continue with Heather Hare's question. Okay. She pointed this out to us, bursting Sean's bubble I'm so sorry, Sean. But she she continues and says, instead of asking, was he knighted? I think we should be asking, will he be knighted? And if so, by whom? Will his secret ever be outed? Surely it must if he gets knighted in the future. And if so, how? What do y'all think? I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't think he gets outed. I think he is essentially the Lord Commander of the King's Guard without being a knight. (laughs) I'm going to think he does get knighted because I, sort of the way that, that that answer was worded, he says, Sir Duncan was not knighted by Sir Arlen. Or Duncan was not knighted by Sir Arlen, which sort of implies that maybe he was knighted by someone else. Well, that, that would imply that he was knighted by someone else before all of this and that it's that would mean it supports the, that uh, Sean's idea that Dunk is a knight. That's well, no, that, no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm saying he's why... knighted eventually, like not during these stories, like when he's much older. Like before, for example, if someone had asked Martin a question, was Dunk ever knighted? And Martin said no. Well, that would mean he definitely yeah. never gets knighted by anyone ever. But if he says not by Arlen, well, that means he might get knighted later on. I guess theoretically means he might have been knighted by someone else before Arlen died. But I doubt that's it. it. Just but leaves the door open. Yeah, it leaves the door open. Right. right. If, if, a flat no means so never. Bad. Yeah. But this is. Yeah, it's why I went so bad to know exactly what the question and answer were because you could get so much more information yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah. It may be enough to relieve Dunk of accusations of being dishonest, but maybe not. <laughs> Probably not. Now, I don't mind the dishonesty personally because I think it's just, you know, yeah, you gotta sometimes you gotta lie to do the right thing. You know, it's just that's just the way the world is. Sometimes you gotta lie to, to do good. Maybe just the paradigm that we're faced with. But right. And I do agree that lying sometimes is the correct, honorable, chivalrous. Like the, at the end of this story, when Dunk lies, he's doing it in an attempt to protect the innocent. Yeah. Like it's a good I can defend it. myself. I can lose this blood. These people can't go to war over this, you know? Yeah. So he's he's doing it in the way a knight should do it if you're gonna lie, right? Yeah. But lying just to be a knight to get in a tournament, that's a little bit uh, more selfish. That's okay, a little bit yeah. more questionable. You know? I agree with that. That's a good point. That's a good way to parse it. Good said, Sean. <laughs> Except I don't want to be saying it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're all having, we're all finding out where, where the lines of our compromise uh, <laughs> can be drawn here. Here's a great comment. We got an email from listener Nicholas Burke. that says, I am a bit behind on the show and have been catching up on the episodes covering the Hedge Knight this week. As a Burke of Irish descent, I was delighted to hear about the real-life Ashford Castle connection to A Song of Ice and Fire. This had never occurred to me before. The podcast discussion triggered me to tell my wife and daughter about this ancient family history that I had not thought of since I was a child. I showed my seven-year-old daughter pictures of the castle in its modern guise of the hotel. 
She is amazed that it used to belong to our family and now and is now plotting how to get it back. <laughs> Her current plan is to travel to Ireland, hire a company of knights, book them all rooms at the hotel, and lead them to capture the castle overnight while the current owners are asleep. So far, Weasel Soup has not worked its way into the plan. <laughs> That's a great story. That is fantastic. She's got a little Daenerys there. She's like, I will take back what is mine. <laughs> That's a good plan, too, to <laughs> hire, just book rooms at the hotel and then have them all emerge at night. That's pretty smooth, actually. That's really clever. Your seven-year-old has a has a future in uh, planning of some kind, some sort of <laughs> some sort of planner, events, and people. Maybe director. Yeah, director. That's the better word. Producer, something like that. Someone who puts it all together. Someone with a great thinking mind. That's what your daughter is. Mr. Burke, thank you for that email that made our day. Let's get back to the story. Against Eustace's isolation and this deteriorating, deteriorating situation, we have some basically he's kind of isolated, left alone. There's not much he can do. He doesn't have a higher authority to reach out to. We have the opposite of that, the ultimate ace in the hole or ring in the boot. As we say, here's the quote. They had climbed the Prince's Pass together and crossed the deep sands of Dorne, both red and white. Poleboat had taken them down the green blood to the Planky Town, where they took passage for Old Town on the Galleus White Lady. They had slept in stables, inns, and ditches, broken bread with holy brothers, whores, and mummers, and chased down a hundred puppet shows. Egg had kept Dunk's horse groomed, his long sword sharp, his mail free of rust. Now compare that to what Varus says to dying Kevin... In the epilogue of A Dance with Dragons, here you go. Quote again. He has lived with fisherfolk, worked with his hands, swum in rivers and mended nets and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish and cook and bind up a wound. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. Tommen has been taught that kingship is his right. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put his people first and live and rule for them. So a lot of parallels there. We've got the pole boat, um, both of them spend time on a pole boat there. That's, of course, a big part of Tyrion's chapters is going down the Rhoyne with Yandri and Ysilla's boat and all that with Griff and Duck. And that's really important as well as a connection because the green blood, you see it says the orphans of the green blood, right? Well, the the orphans, that's a little bit misleading. Uh, but because, well... They're not really orphans. It's a it's a statement on they used to be Mother Roin. They emanate from Mother Roin. That's who their mother is. So they're separated from their mother by living in Dorne. So they're orphans. I, it's more about their heritage past being removed than their immediate parents being removed. Right. I wonder if that you know it's it's too bad we didn't get these scenes on page because it could have been comedic. Uh, <laughs> right. You could have seen like a. What are you? I'm an orphan too. And like, no, <laughs> we're not actually orphans because Dunk really is an orphan. <laughs> but uh, I was like, no, we're not that kind of orphan. Sorry for the confusion, man. But um, now, building even more on that quote, the comparison between young Griff as described by Varus, here's even more. The quote continues Aegon has been shaped for rule since before he could walk. He's been trained in arms as befits a knight to be. But that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes. He speaks several tongues. He has studied history and law and poetry. Asepta has instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. That's the kind of education he's gotten. You see, it says Aegon has been shaped for a rule since before he could walk. That's almost true for both of them. They're both named Aegon. 
Egg was in shape for rule, but he was shaped to be a prince. Maybe not to sit the throne, but to be in charge of people. Uh, all these things he's been trained in is true. This statement somewhat undermines the first, though, doesn't it? How Have you really been, are you really afraid and hunted and all these things? Was he really taught that kingship is his duty if he's known he's a king this his whole time? Does it really count the same if you know in the back of your head that you, yeah, I'm pretending to be a commoner, but it's still pretending. Yeah, Egg's out there washing mail, grooming horses. He's doing the work, but he knows he's got that boot. He's got that ring in his boot. That privilege is there, that ace in the hole. He can't forget that's there. Just like Aegon can't forget that he's the son of Rhaegar, no matter how much they hide him, no matter they conceal his identity, he knows who he is, even though it's probably a lie. <laughs> Set that aside for a minute. He can't erase that from the picture. Vars is like, oh, he knows what it's like. It's like he doesn't actually know what it's like. He has, this, he has a semblance of what it's like. He hasn't truly been in that position. The one who's truly been in that position sure. is Daenerys. <laughs> Daenerys yeah, was, yeah. But that's a whole nother topic. To be fair, though, a couple of things. One, he knows better than most anyone else. Maybe he doesn't truly know, but he knows better than any yes, other Yes, you're right. Right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right. And two, even Daenerys, she knew she was, you know, she, she got it in her mind. She's going to get her throne back. You know, she did still feel on some level like she had this destiny. Her brother's telling her, yes. you know, she wasn't ignorant to the fact she had royal blood. And Egg, though, it's like Aegon, young Griff, I guess, to be clear, he, even if he knows he's Rhaegar's son, mm-hmm. even if it really is true or not, but he still also knows he's going to have to fight for it, right? Yeah, that's true. He, he, he's being groomed and he's living the common man's life or whatever. But even if he really is king, it's not quite the same as Egg being able to pull out this proof and suddenly people bow to him. That's true. Right? That's true. Even if he had proof to pull out, people might still not bow to him, you know, but he doesn't really even have proof to pull out. So. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, because like the Lannisters aren't going to be like, uh, uh, that would in fact do the opposite if he pulled out. <laughs> you know, he's like, I'm yeah. Rhaegar. Something like, oh, well, we're going to kill you. Like, assassinate him quick. Yeah. That would put him in more danger. Yeah, you're right. So yeah. so there, you're right. There is, it's a different sort of picture. But the, the point is, you can't just manufacture what it's like to be a commoner. You can learn a lot of it. And I totally agree with what you're saying that this is better, way better than not doing it. It's just, we just need to properly yeah. frame it and not make it into something it isn't. He knows he has that insurance policy. And just knowing you have that insurance policy just does a lot for you. It's the same line of thinking as why Egg felt like he could comment on so many things, you know, like cynically, like, oh, that guy's stupid or whatever. Like, kind of like how Arya would, you know, we can make that comparison, yeah. like being snide. He can do that because he knows he's... It's a little easier to be snide when you have a rich daddy. Or yeah, whatever. no one's going to pop you in the mouth when your dad's Maycar. But if he was just some regular commoner, he, was, he probably would get smacked a few times, if not a lot of times. Yeah, he also, in addition to this Trump card that he can pull, he's also this seven-foot knight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a few times where he probably would have been suffered a worse punishment if Dunk wasn't there to hover around, keep things calm or whatever, you know? Yeah. So we have to keep that in mind. Yes, Egg is roughing it, but there's definitely a huge difference. And, and you're right about Danny too. Even in her case, she, well, she was born with a claim to the throne. That's, that's a huge thing that, you know, you still, she still has to facilitate that and make it happen. But like, Watt and Watt and Watt weren't born with claims to anything, Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, so there, there's a lot of these things. There's a lot of different details here that, that have to be sorted through. But here's another really great aspect of this. It's just the, the dis- 
the temptation of power is a really big aspect of A Song of Ice and Fire. And here we see, I think, George channeling one of his favorite fandoms, one of his favorite novels. Egg really wants to use the ring to do good. <laughs> mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's so much like Boromir, who's like, no, we have to use this ring to do good. Like, why do we not use this ring to do good when we can? It's like, why do we just not use this power? Well, there's a lot of reasons. If you've read or watched Lord of the Rings, you know why. It's fun that Sean Bean is Boromir to just make this all <laughs> wrap up even better. But I mean, the expression, one of the reasons Dunk says don't do it is because <laughs> then Bloodraven will learn they're out there. The eye, the one eye of Bloodraven, it's so much like Sauron, like the one eye of Sauron. If he uses the ring, the ring rays sense it. They detect its use. So it's like the one boot. <laughs> <laughs> the boot of power. <laughs> yeah, it was... I, I really love all this discussion right here. I I remember thinking, it's interesting that that's what Dunk is worried about. Someone realizing who Egg is, he thinks of Bloodraven. Yeah. It makes me wonder if Bloodraven at one point like advised them on some level. Like, all right, I, I guess you guys can do this, but don't let me find out about it. And it's also worth noting how they're coming down on the side of a traitor right now. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and almost do it again. And yep. in fact, Blood Raven does find out when Egg reveals his <laughs> identity in the next book. So it was uh, lots lots of, uh, I don't know, irony and foreshadowing and such happening here. Another thought that I have about this, and this could get maybe a little bit, I don't know, touchy or political, but I, I just think about this a lot. For better or worse, the United States or a country might feel like they need a certain size military to defend itself legitimately. Sure. Right? Yeah. And our country is big enough and has interests and allies around the world that we have a pretty freaking big military. But once we have this big military, we start to feel like, well, hey, we should use it to go help these people in Kuwait or Rwanda or yeah. Somalia or whatever it is. Or Vietnam. And, yeah. Yeah. And then once we do that, like we get mixed, you just don't realize what you're doing, even if there are good intentions, which is questionable in the first place. But even if you have good intentions, you're still initiating a lot of killing and destruction. And you just got to be careful how you use that ring. And it might be better to not use it or have it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Very good said, Sean. That's exactly the type of thing that I think George was getting at with this, just on a very small scale. It's very subtle because it doesn't happen. He just brings it up and they're like, no. Dunk shuts it down. And because he shuts it down, they are forced to look for another solution and they come up with one. So that's good, right? But also you like you like that Egg wants to do this, but you also like that Dunk understands that it's not worth taking the risk and that they can probably find another way to do it without that risk. So it's like the instinct to do good and the instinct to do good without the risk to kind of manage that, right? That's, that's kind of the job of the older person, the less naive person, the the, the guy taking care, the bodyguard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is his job. He's He wants to protect Egg. So that's really important. And it, with all this, I, I sorry if I'm repeating something we already touched on, but it is good that Egg does have good intentions. Yeah. Right? That absolutely. is a, a g- good sign of his character and the, the education of the king, you know, that Dunk isn't trying to stop him from using a ring to, I don't know, to, to get some girl that he wants or to get some win some contests or he's trying to protect people. Egg, I really love that Egg even recognizes these people, they're going to get 
Your shields won't stop an arrow. They're, this is a suicide mission. We can't let this happen, Dunk. You know, he, he's really worried about these common people. You know? Yeah. What's Ed going to be like when he hits a teenager and he meets Beth Blackwood? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dunk's going to be like, that. let me keep you guys apart. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't know this character. I must, I that's, must not. That's his wife. That's his future wife. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. So, we the solution does sort of come from an unusual way. It's not the ideal solution, but it is a workable solution. A blood price. It's, Anina writes, it's unnerving, intentionally so, that it's uh, this continuing theme of just showing how these lowborn, these peasants are kind of seen as property. Like, you, you didn't, they're treated like you hurt my animal. Like, you, you killed my horse, you killed my peasant. It's treated similarly. And we don't like to see that, but we acknowledge that it's a part of this, and it was a part of a lot of real history in, in similar ways. And uh, But this is just like we talked about last time, how it's kind of a good thing in some ways, because just like trial by combat is better than starting a war, because it's just the nobles fighting out their differences without bringing the commoners into it. Same sort of thing here. They just haggle over a price. It's offensive, but it's still better than getting everyone to fight. Wouldn't you agree yeah. with that? Like, that's hardly even... Yeah. It's interesting. I think you pointed out that the solution that old relic Eustace comes up with is a solution from old times. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Similar parallel to how the solution, you know, the, uh, that they came up with in the, in the first book was also from old times. You know, yeah. someone looking to... That's true. Trying to find another way. It was more of a bad guy trying to do it last time. But I guess, I don't know if I'm going to call Eustace straight up a good guy, but he's not necessarily an antagonist. An interesting element of this story that Martin does a lot is kind of blur the lines between protagonist and antagonist, good guy, bad guy. Yeah. Also, But also kind of interesting, ironic, unnerving, whatever, that his plan is, all right, I'm going to give the guy we cut one silver and give Lady Rohan three silvers. Yeah. <laughs> the way around <laughs> right yeah that just goes to show like who's like the, the wait why does she get the most <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course it's not because it's her that's clearly how it would be with anyone like well if it was him, yeah. if it was the tables the tables were turned he would be the one getting offered the most and yeah it's like well, wait what <laughs> it's his face i mean come on but but we're not surprised by that either are we we're like yeah that's this is how they do business so let's move on to one of the more peculiar and interesting parts of the story, uh, the dream uh, and the memory of Dorn. Both the, these two things together, the dream in Dorn and the time in Dorn. We're going to do these back to back. Sean, you wrote a, a good piece to start this off here. So let's kick it over to you to get us going. Yeah, I had this thought. I've thought about this a little bit before in, in, in general. My, my, my first thoughts on it were more about TV shows, but I, I see it in Martin specifically. that. You sometimes you kind of have to keep the audience up to date on what's going on. Yeah. Sometimes you have someone tuning in that didn't see the last season or the last episode, especially in, in older TV when you couldn't just like make sure to see everything on Netflix recorded or whatever. That's why we um, have our previously on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and sometimes it's some pretty contrived dialogue. You have like two characters telling each other things they should both already know <laughs> just to get, get the audience up to date. But Martin does this really well, I think, in general, because his books sometimes come out years and years apart. So even if you read the last book, you still might need some refresher. And there's so much 
in these books, right? So you might need a little refresher on like what happened last time or who this character was or whatever. And uh, and this dream is a he does it a, a lot of ways through the book, but this dream is a really good way to give us a little bit of reminders of the Ashford tournament and to fill us in a little bit on what happened at Dorne. And also to get inside Dunk's brain in a little bit more abstract way, what he's thinking about. And beyond that, remember I also speculated when we were talking about the Hedge Knight that Baylor probably prayed before he came up with his plan, Mm -hmm. right? He probably, even if he wasn't necessarily a devout worshiper of the seven, he probably still did what prayer fundamentally is, which is reflect on what you're thankful for and what you're hopeful for, yeah. right? That's basically what prayer is, right? Yeah. And this dream is almost the exact opposite of that. Dunk is reflecting on his regrets and his fears. Mm. That's what's coming out in this mm. dream. That's very good said. Sean, yeah, he thinks of the stars. He, he reminds him of Ashford. He dreams of Dorne. That's how it gets started. So you're right, like regrets in particular from Ashford, fears yeah. for what's coming soon yeah. here with the thinks battle about and the, the conflict. Yeah, he thinks about the people who died because of him. And he thinks about the people who might die because of him, you know. Which mm-hmm. includes Egg and includes even his yeah. horse that died apparently very early on in their journey into Dorne because it says the horse died on the, the, the crossing from Prince's Pass to Vaith, which they went straight to Dorne from Ashford. It's basically a straight shot south, almost directly south from Ashford to the Prince's Pass. And, well, that's where they went, right? At the end of the story, that's the way they went. So probably we're, we're probably talking only a couple months after the end of uh, The Hedge Knight where Chestnut died. And it's been about a year and a half altogether. And it's really, yeah, right. It's really interesting because the, at, at first it's presented as a memory. Like he's, these Dornish knights are mocking him for wasting water. And they're like, it's only a horse, which is ironic because the Dornish horses are amazing. And they're like, it's only a horse, but your horses are are just a wonder of biology and human breeding. And then, by the <laughs> way, the kind of horse he turns down at the end of the story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but then we find out, no, that's not what happened at all. He just, it's, you're right, it's, he's it's just projecting his guilt and his fear onto his dream to distort what really happened. And it's, it's a really interesting device by George to not present the, the accurate memories and then to, then to clarify what the accurate memories were a bit later. Also, just another perhaps nod here the wasting of water. A man's water is his own conserving water in the desert. George, also a big fan of Dune. And uh, that's that's very much Dune-type attitude and talk right there. Very similar to the... What's Dune? Of- I've never heard of that. <laughs> you liar. Sean's lying. He's lying. <laughs> so much to make liar. a movie of that, so I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then there's this the other guilt, right? Like, he never cried for me, like with Sir Arlen and... <laughs> And that he thinks of Valor and Valar saying "begone," and yeah, and like you said, the villagers. It's just woo. He, I, I am going to argue. He regrets. He says he never cried over Chestnut. I think he regrets never crying over Chestnut. Oh. I don't know if he's ever cried over Arlen either, and I bet he regrets it. He might. Maybe if it feels like maybe he should release that emotion. Yeah. You know? Does he feel like there's something wrong with him for not crying? He's like, am I not a good person because I am not crying yeah. here? It's, it's like, that's the kind of thing he asks himself and it's the kind of thing that his readers it really, really tells us this is a good man. Like, it's, a, it's an irony of life that you never ever want anyone you love to feel guilty. But if they never, if they went through their entire life never feeling guilty about anything, they probably aren't a good person. 
right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if you never feel shame or guilt ever, I don't know if I trust you. You know, <laughs> it's probably not because you're Jesus and never commit a sin. It's because you don't feel guilty when you should. You right, know? right. Like yeah. there are definitely people who feel guilty too much, and this is probably an example of that, or, or it's definitely an example of that. But if you've dunk never felt guilt ever, I would be like, "Whoa, this dude is. I don't. Uh, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, this is a little unnerving. I got a man without guilt, a woman without guilt. Like that's how do you like? How do you self correct? How do you make yourself a better person? Yeah. You know, I don't know. It just it, that's that's scary almost for a human being to to possess these to lack these traits. It's like it's cl- part of the definition of sociopath. Yeah, like an inability to process danger to yourself, an inability to see your own mistakes, an inability to see your own errors. Yeah, these these things are married in conceptually within. Arian probably never felt guilt. Joffrey never feels guilt. Right? Damn right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a, a safe bet right there. But there's also an element of this dream that reminds us of a few other dreams while also seeming a little bit prophetic. One example here, Nina ties this to the dream of Theon. Theon's dream in Winterfell, which he's in a Weirwood bed. So there's maybe a little bit of reason to think there's a little magic going on. But Theon doesn't really have magic dreams. He doesn't have supernatural blood or anything like that. But he dreams of a few things that are sort of like he's guilty about things that don't have anything to do with him. Like he, he, he sees King Robert in his dream. And it's like, well, why is Theon dreaming of King Robert? That's that's really kind of out there. And here, uh, the foreshadowy part here is reminiscent of what we might, might expect from Summerhall. The spade slipped from Dunk's hands. Egg, he cried, run, we have to run. The sands were giving way beneath their feet. The boy tried to scramble from the hole. Its crumbling sides gave way and collapsed. Dunk saw the sands wash over Egg, burying him as he opened his mouth to shut. Tried to fight his way to him, but the sands were rising all around him, pulling him down into the grave, filling his mouth, his nose, his eyes. So, as we mentioned a few times, sand is one of the few things that has a chance, a chance to stop wildfire. Uh, We learn the pyromancers build sand traps throughout their structure throughout their temple or their their, their building, whatever, their tunnels, <laughs> so that if it gets going, they can activate a trap, dump all sorts of sand, and prevent the wildfire from spreading. So the question is whether or not these sorts of setups were made at Summerhall. Entirely possible it didn't, that they didn't have time to set up any sort of sand traps, and this is just uh, connecting a dot that isn't there. But it does fit awfully well, the concept of sand, because we know wildfire happened at uh, Summerhall, the, the fragment from World of Ice and Fire is written like a fragment. It's missing parts of sentences, but it says things like towering, wildfire burning out of control, grew so hot that dot, 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 the valor of the Lord Commander, dot, 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 right? So <laughs> it really sounds like Dunk, who is the future Lord Commander, he's like, run, we have to run, we have to get out, tried to fight his way to him, but the sands were rising. It's like I said, it would fit really well, but it's far from a sure thing. We, we don't really know. And aside from that, which again, consider how many readers would have no idea about any of that reading this book. It sort of fits in certain ways. Dunk's having a dream. And a lot of times in a dream, he might be drowning, but there's a drought going on. Yeah. So he might not be dreaming about drowning in water. And he did just come from those deserts so that imagery would be in his brain still. You know? Yeah, and he is about to drown Sir Lucas. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. So, yeah, you could see why the dreams would pop up in Dunk's head. And then in a metal level from us, you can see how we interpret it as mm. impacting the future. Because I do 100% think that this is how it's going to go down at Summerhall. That Dunk will be saying, egg, we have to run. That it isn't just going to happen in a snap. I feel a little stronger about it, too, on this reread than I did before. This is an idea that's been out there for a while. But given all the connections we made between the pyromancers, the way it was discussed, and the Hedge Knight, we brought up a lot of connections there. And part of that was just the way they were written. You know, Clash of Kings was written alongside the Hedge Knight. And so that's part of why all those connections are there. But that, to me, does make this a little stronger, thinking through it that way. Nina also writes, another part about Theon's dream that I didn't mention is that, that even Rob and Greywind were in the dream wounded and bloodied, which which is before the Red Wedding. It's Clash of Kings. So obviously the Red Wedding was until Storm of Swords. Now that, so if it had been after, it would make sense for Theon to feel guilty because Theon abandoned Rob and, you know, whatever happens afterwards, he could maybe blame himself before. But this hadn't happened yet. <laughs> so it is a little foreshadowing. You know, Martin in this world has this extra mystical element to it, which makes us search for some potential magic behind a dream. But it's nothing new for authors to use dreams for foreshadowing and symbolism in the first place. Yeah, that's true. Additionally, there could be some magic working through characters that aren't specifically magic themselves. Like if Bran or Bloodraven are thinking about Winterfell, it might bleed into Theon's dreams or is a werewolf tree there. If Egg has some sort of premonitory abilities and he's with Dunk and... I, I don't know. I could see a lot of ways. I could see justifications for this, even if Dunk himself isn't magical. I can still see him having magical dreams. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, like mm, having a magical dream doesn't mean you are magical. It's like thinking yeah. thinking of it in terms of like a a signal that's being brought, a magical signal that you uh, it's it's pushed into your head, passed through you. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that doesn't make yeah. Just being able to receive dreams, put that out there, doesn't make you. I personally don't think that Dunk can have magical dreams. I think that, for example, Blood Raven speaking to Bran in dreams, I think that that required a certain susceptibility to it that I don't think Dunk would have. But, you know, Dunk, we don't know his background. No, we don't know anything about that. He could have that sort of blood, so I can't say for sure. But I don't think that this is at all um, related to being prophetic. Okay, so you think it's, it's foreshadowing, not that, magically foreshadowing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah I think it's just totally literary valid. foreshadowing for yeah. us. Yeah. My default is to agree with you there, Shea, but I want to point out that even though right now we don't have some evidence for it, if three books later, fingers crossed, uh, <laughs> Dunk does come to have some sort of magical abilities, we'll look back at this and be like, oh, you know, he's mm-hmm. planted that seed, you know. Uh, Nina also points to, draws our attention to Jamie's dream of himself and Brienne beneath Cashley Rock. When you have the faces uh, of Rhaegar and the Kingsguard, it's similar levels of guilt of, of like, you, I left my wife and children in your care um, to Jamie, And Jamie knows he did the right thing by killing Ares, but that doesn't mean the side effect of Rhaegar's children and wife being killed. He doesn't, he's not just okay with that either. He's like, well, that was, I had to do this. And that was, you know, that also happened. So he could feel guilty about that. That makes it's reasonable for him to feel guilty about that, even if he hasn't processed his responsibility or level or lack thereof. 
And that's very similar here. Like, Dunk didn't kill Baylor, you know, but he does bear some responsibility for the situation that it occurred under, you know, or at least he thinks he does. You know, I thought of that too, by the way, when Valar, I, I thought about it when Dunk dreamed about it. Maybe it also applies when Valar originally said, you know, my father was going to be such this great king. Why did the gods let him die and leave you? I, I feel like that's some combination of Valor and Dunk being unfair. Like, I, it's understandable for Valor to feel it more personally and, and Dunk to feel this guilt, especially because it's almost consistent with a lot of his character. But why isn't it, how come the gods took Baylor and not Makar or not Stefan? <laughs> yeah, you know I mean? right, like, yeah. There's all these other people who were way more in the wrong. Or just Arian, uh, just Arian. Like, heck, yeah, it's why not the him? actual perpetrator of the whole thing in the first place. So, yeah. <laughs> but, but Valar can't blame Aaron. You know what I mean? Like, I, I understand all the reasons behind it, but you want to shake Dunk and be like, come on, man, don't blame yourself. <laughs> it's, you're being unfair. You're yeah, don't listen them. to them. Like, yeah, don't listen to their yeah. weird working way through it. Like, Valar doesn't want to blame his cousin, but he really should. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, a lot of that dream was a distortion. The Dornish didn't laugh, which that's kind of nice to find out. You're like, okay, good. The Dornish weren't jerks about it. <laughs> they were actually yeah. kind of nice about it. They were like, look, they were very zen about it. Like, look, the the desert is a harsh place and there's a lot of animals that live here. They need to eat too. Let them, you know, this is just meat now. Uh, it's the way of the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he said it, uh, you know, kindly. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't rude about it or whatever. And he didn't actually try to bury Chestnut at all for that, partly for that reason. So it's a little sad that he doesn't find Tanzel. But I think I, I had a sense that you would actually appreciate that, didn't you, Sean? It's just kind of from a realism point of view, perspective, right? Yeah. I think that uh, something that uh, Nina pointed out in an earlier episode, but that, you know, both Dunk and the reader realize this isn't going to be so easy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, everything is going to work out <laughs> with a tidy, happy ending, you know? Yeah, I feel like it would be nigh on impossible for Dunk to just find Tancel, except that she is a puppeteer. And so some people would share that, a puppet show is in town and stuff like that. So I think there are definite ways for that to happen. Apparently that's why it they would give a, a good lead. Yeah. But think how many different oh, yeah. towns there would be to have a puppet show and uh, the odds of them lining up for in the sure. right place at the right time. And she may not be a puppeteer anymore. All her puppets were destroyed. Her <laughs> hand is broke. Like she literally might've had to start doing something else. That's a good she point. Um, and it does actually say that they tried a hundred different puppet shows and never found yeah. it. But, it's it, one of the reasons it's extra sad is because the great spring sickness meant that she was very likely to not be elsewhere in the realm. Like at least she was in this smaller area, but even that's not necessarily true. Maybe she went overseas or something, but <laughs> he had a better chance of finding her during the sickness <laughs> than elsewhere. Cause now like now she could just be in she, the North. She could go to, you know, white Harbor for all we know, she, but she wasn't going to go there during the sickness. But now yeah. she went across the sea and ended up seeing Arian. Like, <laughs> she went to Lise and was like, oh, God. <laughs> like, I wanted to accidentally run into Dunk, and I accidentally run into Arian. Like, that's <laughs> bad luck right there. That would be a weird place, by the way, because one of the books makes it appear that Dunk will be in Essos. Yeah. If he just ran into her there. <laughs> so because the of this moment, because Dunk doesn't find Tanzel, well, people, certain people, wanted to know <laughs> whether he ever would. <laughs> Certain people at Tuscon 43 attended the Q&A 
certain people asked George this directly. Certain people named Ashea asked this question directly to George. Yes, I said, I know you have quite a lot of Dunkin' Egg books planned. Are we ever going to see Tansel Tutal again? Are we going to find out what happened to her? And he said, well, that would be telling. And then he laughed. But I think there's a good chance. Yes. <laughs> and this was back in November in 2016. And I want to talk about this for a second because... I assumed that we'd see Tansel again. I don't really think there's a chance that we don't see her again, but I really wanted George to know that fans care about this, that we like Tansel, that we like Dunkin' Egg, that we're thinking about this sort of thing. I think it's kind of would be heartening to me to get questions about this sort of thing versus mainstream sort of questions about the main series. And I threw that in there for that reason. I really appreciate how well worded that question was and how revealing George's answer to it was. <laughs> I wish we could get that in other scenarios. <laughs> well, this one was a lot more recent. This was five years ago. The other was <laughs> 17 years ago. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another note here, good catch by Nina, that when our, uh, Dunk knew Bennis from before, they were hired by a Dornish merchant to see them safe from Lannisport to the Prince's Pass. And of course, when, the, when they get to the Prince's Pass, the merchant, the implication is the merchant's no longer worried about having guards because he's safe in Dorn again. He's a Dornish merchant. So it just goes to show that Dornish people don't feel safe in the realm. Uh, Tanzel is a good reason why. <laughs> like, uh, but there you go. There's still this sentiment. There's still people that are like, oh, Dornish, you know, that it, it, by the time we get to A Song of Ice and Fire proper, that sentiment still exists, but it's a lot more muted. It's, it's, the, it's very mild prejudice versus this, which is pretty severe prejudice, the kind that can get you killed on the road, right? So that's a lot worse, but um, important to point out, I think. As for, the, they meet Lady Vaith, which is possibly the same Lady Vaith that Aegon IV was horrible to. One of her, he was one of her lovers, and she fell so in love with him thinks that she's Aegon's the fourth's one true love, which is really sad because he had such low regard for her that he took her from amongst the prisoners. They were Dornish hostages that were going to all be executed but because of Daron's murder, the Daron the first, who after that parlay that he was killed at, there was so much anger at Dorne that they were going to kill all the hostages. And she was safe because she was Aegon's lover, though. But he just gave her back. He's like, nah, I don't want you anymore. Go ahead and execute her. <laughs> he could have just kept her a little longer and be like, keep her safe. But he, that's just how callous this guy was. This is the father of Bloodraven and Damon Blackfire and, and King Daron the Good as well, because he was very much the opposite of his father. But uh, so this could be that same Lady Vaith because she the age sort of lines up, but we really don't know for sure. But that would sort of explain maybe why she's portrayed as a bit mad here. That Casella Vaith, or the other Vaith, Lady Vaith was mad, so maybe this is, that's part of why it might be the same one. He didn't have kids with her. Now, of course, none of those hostages were actually executed, as it turns out, because Baylor the Blessed took over, the Septon King, and he was like, nah, no executions, pardons. We pardon everyone, we send them back to Dorne, and I'm going with them to walk barefoot. <laughs> 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 to, to atone <laughs> for this war. So 
that's that was a wow moment. Good job, Baylor there. And that's who Baylor uh, Breakspear was named after, as I've pointed out before. But bears repeating because, boy, that was an outstanding fellow. That's Baylor the Blessed. Yeah, yeah, that's Baylor the Blessed, who was king after Daron the Young Dragon. They were brothers. Daron the Young Dragon died without kids. Uh, he was only about fifteen or so. He basically Rob Stark. I mean, he's he's Rob Stark, uh, a Targaryen Rob Stark. All his the beats of his story are very similar. So here's another little quote. We're a little more uh, of our green blood connection. When they'd been pulling down the green the green blood, the orphan girls had made a game of rubbing Egg's shaven head for luck. It made the boy blush redder than a pomegranate. <laughs> so we've already discussed the difference between orphans here. And it was kind of interesting, just as an aside, you know, he isn't really that bothered by it. You know, Dunk wonders about his parents a little bit, but it doesn't seem to like really, there's not something he lingers on. It's not some, some great source of sadness, which Jon Snow thinks about it a, a lot or a decent amount. To be fair, it's more a part of his story. John was sort of teased with, one day you'll be told. So of course he's going to yeah. think about it. Whereas uh, Dunk is, he is of the attitude, most likely correctly so, that there's no way he'll ever find out. And yeah, I, I think that he would have just been raised to think that's normal. Every kid he knew wouldn't have known their parents. because yeah, he grew up amidst other orphans, yeah. Yeah, he just and wouldn't care. John was also being raised in an environment where... I don't know, heritage mattered more, you know, oh, right what point. you're going to inherit and et cetera, where that it doesn't matter as much to Dunk. So, yeah. Although Dunk has at least reflected on it because there is that moment when he points out to Egg, hey, I'm probably an orphan, you know? <laughs> yeah. And Egg's like, you really? You know? Uh, yeah. And a bastard. Yeah. You're, I'm a bastard. Yeah. You're a bastard. But yeah. Bastard, not orphan. Sorry. But, well, but almost the same. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. The, yeah. The story was linked because that's, that's how he figured that out. Yeah. So we mentioned Yandri and Rasilla. That's their, their pole boat they were on. They were actually born on the green blood. I, I think that's a, a detail that gets lost in the shuffle. They felt the call to return to Mother Royne and moved to Essos to, to live on the river there. So that's kind of neat. I think that's a detail that gets lost in the, in the shuffle. But of course, is another reminder of Young Griff's many parallels to Egg. And it's, it's Tyrion goofing with him saying, the young girls are going to make fun of your blue hair. And here we have, that's this kind of similar reference here where the, the girls are rubbing mm -hmm. his head for luck and <laughs> kind of uh, doing that. Now, to make the connection between blue hair and shaved hair, we have Dunk saying, what did your father tell you? To keep my hair shaved or dyed and tell no man my true name, the boy said with obvious reluctance. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Is it... To keep my hair shaved or dyed and tell no man my true name. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I love it. I love it. So that presentation of appearance, keeping your appearance hidden or keeping your appearance a certain way is a segue to how Dunk is preparing to present himself to Lady Rohan, which is, this scene is a great source of comic relief amidst all this tragedy and decline and sadness you have. The proverbial blind leading the blind here. They have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> I love this moment where it's like, well, here's something you should try. Well, the boys said, some knights sing gallant songs to their ladies or play them tunes upon a lute. I have no lute. Dunk looked morose. That night I drank too much at the Planky Town. He told me I sang like an ox in a mud wallow. <laughs> and so they go back and forth for a while and he just goes, there will be no singing, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's it was it. He's like, how could you forget that? And he's like, you told me to forget that. <laughs> you ordered me to forget. 
<laughs> and then there's this, you should win her to your side with gallant compliments. The boy looked as cool and crisp in his checky tunic as Sir Eustace had in his cloak. Am I the only one who sweats? <laughs> gallant compliments, Dunk Gekkoed? What sort of gallant compliments? <laughs> That's another like thing of, of knightly, that, knightly privilege or whatever. These, these guys are used to wearing wool in summer. <laughs> Something yeah. part of their upbringing, you know. And with Egg, it's a double whammy because like in the bath scene, they point out that Egg loves his water super hot like all these Targaryens do, just like Daenerys did. And like they do have a few degrees more resistance. It's not just a preference. There is something going on with their genetics there. It's a little bit of that actual dragon blood going on. Yeah, we saw that with Danny also, the, the water that seemed too hot that she was seemed fine to her. That's like her and first chapter, yeah. Dunk's like trying to keep it to himself how hot the water <laughs> is. He doesn't want to admit to Egg that he can't handle it. <laughs> yeah. So, so that conversation keeps going. They're, they're back and forth. They're like not getting anywhere. And then we have this moment where Dunk says, well-shaped ears? Dunk's <laughs> doubts were growing. Or pretty eyes. Tell her her gown brings out the color of her eyes. I reflected for a moment. Only she only has the one eye, like Lord Bra- <laughs> Blood Raven. Unless she only has. <laughs> <laughs> what a random thing! It's like, what? Well, maybe she'll. What if, what if she only has one eye? Or what if? Uh, <laughs> what if she really is red? Or I don't know. <laughs> it's just all these really ridiculous conclusions. And it takes them to an even more ridiculous place when they start talking about magic and poisons, and it's just like, uh, what? So here's this next quote. Whenever she gives birth, a demon comes by night to carry off the issue. Sam Stoop's wife says she sold her babies unborn to the Lord of the Seven Hells, so she'd teach her his black arts. Highborn ladies don't meddle with the black arts. They dance and sing and do embroidery. <laughs> Maybe she dances with demons and embroiders evil spells, Dick said with relish. <laughs> they don't meddle with the black arts. They dance and sing and do embroidery. That's like something like chapter one Sansa would say. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> certainly Sansa long farther down the line wouldn't say that sort of thing but now, <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> this is Egg like being you know he's kind of being silly yeah. but he's being clever too this is, this is a good I don't know rapport between the two of them coming out it, it's and, and some good uh, comic relief too yeah it, it reminds me a little bit of the conversation in Brienne's chapters about the Lostin shield and how the Lostins were dark and, and evil and doing uh, evil spells and all that stuff. And Danelle Lawson is said to have bathed in blood to keep her youth. Now, to me, when they say bathed in blood to keep her youth, she has bright red hair. Well, I suspect she dyes her hair and some servants saw the hair dye. The and Red in the pool, yeah. And think, oh my God, she's bathing in blood. However, and that's a common thing. Like you say, woman in power, oh, it, it can't be because of her abilities. It must be because of her black arts and all that. That's just a yeah. standard refrain, misogynist refrain there uh, that's directed at women in power. That happens in different forms even now. Like It's usually not magic that gets ascribed to these people, but it's something uh, rather than accepting... Their competence right, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Rather than ascribing it to competence, they make some other thing up. So You know, that said, you might be mixing out cause and effect disease. She might have used blood to dye her hair red. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where I'm going with this. It is possible because here we go with this line where Dunk is like, he's pressing Egg. He's like, oh, well, blah, 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 spells. And then Egg sort of gives a serious answer. He, he's kind of playing along with the joking, like you said. But Egg turns around and gives kind of a serious answer here. And, and here we go. Yeah. Dunk says, 
You've known queens and princesses. Did they dance with demons and practice the black arts? And Egg says, Lady Shiara does. Lord, Blood Ra- Lord Bloodraven's paramour, she bathes in blood to keep her beauty. And once, my sister Rhea put a love potion in my drink, so I'd marry her instead of my sister Diella. And he claims it would have worked if he hadn't spat it out. Now, we don't know that. I don't know if we can take Egg's word for that. Like, how does he know it would have worked? But maybe, maybe. And here's the thing. Shiera didn't have red hair that we know of. We know of her hair being like Targaryen color, silver gold. So this whole, oh, she bathed in blood is ascribed to her, but it can't be for hair dye, I don't think. So, mm, so you're right. There might actually, it could be both. She had to be using some kind of magic to not have her hair turn red when she bathed in blood. (laughs) (laughs) So really, and Shiera is like unnaturally beautiful, apparently like the most beautiful woman in the world or something like that. Maybe not unnatural, but just like, wow, like how does, how is she so beautiful? Um, so it does engender more rumors about magic. And she does apparently actually do, does dabble in the black heart. So these things all do work together. And with Miri Mazdur, we see that, that dancing with demons phrase is, it's kind of a, a, he just says it casually, but that's what Danny perceives through the canvas of the tent that Miri is doing. She sees shadows dancing and Miri singing and dancing with them. And it's really, really creepy. And of course, there's the horse blood in there and it is there's blood magic and all that. So it's kind of like, whoa, blatantly magical. Uh, but whether that has anything to do with any of this or it's just meant to be a rumor that sets up these rumors or a real thing that sets up these rumors, we're still in the dark on that. How do you feel about it, Sean? You see rumor versus magic or just somewhere in between? I think that... It's interesting that Martin has made this world where there is real magic. So we have to keep that possibility open. You know, like uh, the dream thing you said, like literary foreshadowing is a thing, but also, but also, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I don't think there's any magic involved with Lady Rohan. It seems like it's much more likely with Shira Seastar, given her connection to Blood Raven, who clearly at least goes on to have magical in- inclinations or whatever. Yeah. But I I only barely know the Sheriff Seastar character. I barely know the, the Lawson character, so I have much less to, to go on as far as right. those go. But I, I will say that whether it's real magic or not, Egg doesn't really know, but he wants to believe it. Yeah. You know? it, it may be true, but he definitely wants to believe it whether or not it's true. So. It, it, which is a very much a real-world kind of function. People like to believe the more salacious, the more exciting versions of stories yeah. because they're more interesting to tell in part because, you know, like that's the one that gets repeated. And it does set this sort of thing up for characters like Melisandre, Daenerys, and other people who uh, may have some magic, but it's the amount they're using is exaggerated. But more directly, it's setting up rumors about Rohan, which are widely exaggerated, wildly exaggerated, and widely exaggerated. Mm. And so I think we're supposed to believe that a lot of this is exaggerated too, because if it's exaggerated about Rohan, it's probably exaggerated about Shiera, it's probably exaggerated about Bloodraven, and it, it actually, we have confirmation that it's exaggerated about Bloodraven. I mean, the guy comes on stage next book, uh, well, next short story, and he's not nearly as ruthless and dark as he seems. He is ruthless. He is dark. But he's also like joking around and making sarcastic comments. Like, he's not this dark, evil lord like Sauron that we've sort of portrayed with this Lord of the Rings parallel here with the secret police running. He's dangerous for sure, but it's... uh, The reality is a lot more balanced. (laughs) 
he still has to put his pants on, you know, one leg at a time, like everyone else or whatever. He's still a, a human walking around on Earth. You know, you're going to have limitations, personality, et cetera. You know? And Shiera Seastar is a perfect example of that because he's in love with her. And she's like, nah, I don't want to marry you. I, I want to be polyamorous and have lots of lovers. And he's like, no, just me. So yeah, like perfect example. Like does, that doesn't sound like the kind of relationship the dark lord, dominant secret police, <laughs> hand of the king who controls the realm wouldn't have relationship problems like that or would he even have, like you don't think of a guy like that having relationship issues <laughs> or having, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't, it makes him, but it makes him more human. And that's exactly what you're saying. Like, he would have those things. Like when you don't, when you only have the persona, when you only have the rumor, it's hard to like formulate any idea of what his regular day-to-day life is like. But you know it's there. You just yeah. don't can't conceive exactly what it's like. Uh coming back to Egg, even though maybe he's a little off the deep end with his description of of some of these rumors and magical people. His advice on yeah, when we get back to the mundane, his advice is pretty good, you know, changing your tunic so you know, before you get there. Uh, so you don't sweat it up. Yeah, pretty smart, right? But also, the, the way he does an end around on uh, on bringing him with when Dunk's like, "No, you're not coming with me." <laughs> he goes to he goes to tell Eustace, and <laughs> yeah, he goes over his head, if you will. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. A knight is more impressive with a squire in attendance. So I have decided that Egg should accompany you to cold mode, <laughs> and that's when remember he goes. Uh, he he mouths the word clout in the ear. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he thinks outwitted by an 11-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> really comedic moment. This is what Rolling Knight was saying like last time we were like talking about how dark the story is. He's like, no, there's all this comic relief. I'm like, yep, yeah, you were right, Rolling Knight. There is a lot of comic relief in this one. A lot of it is this scene, <laughs> but still. You know, uh, we have this section of funny parts and we've we've passed some of these plot chronology-wise, but I feel like it keeps coming up. Yeah. If you don't mind me reading a couple. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, do it. Uh, one, I, I think, was even, should I said it last episode, was uh, when Eustace, or not Eustace, uh, Bennis keeps calling Dunk, Dunk. And, and Dunk's getting fed up with him in general. And, 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 you know, the line is, not Dunk, said Dunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's bad when even the author is against you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then there's... Uh, the scene when he when he's getting the recruits together and after the first day of training, Dunk marched their little Dunk marched their little company down into the cellar and forced them all to have a bath, even those who just had one last winter. <laughs> <laughs> and mm, and uh, when he's conversing with Egg, when Egg's wanting to use his boot, he says. It's good that you're concerned for what and what and what and the rest of them. <laughs> and then this uh, next day, after having, you know, he had the training, you know, with the, the recruits and he's all sweaty and dirty and he wants to have a bath. But then the next day he realizes he's got to go visit Lady Rohan. So he tells Don, she tells Egg, go prepare me another bath. And Egg says, another bath? <laughs> we just had one yesterday. <laughs> He's like, and I got sweaty yesterday and I got to see this, yeah. this woman today. So, yeah. And I think it was in that same scene when uh, it was when they were talking about, it might even been like a flashback, but they were talking about the girls flirting with Egg and his hair. And, he, you know, he doesn't, he's at the age where he doesn't like girls are icky, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, they're icky, and but they're says, not quite completely icky. I mean, he blushes. He's a little true. into. He's in that transition. Yeah, yeah. he's transitioning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and but Dunk is is proud of himself for this moment when Eustace has said, "You're the kind of man I would have wanted my my daughter to marry." Yeah. You know, you're the true steel. And 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 Dunk is telling this story to Egg. And Egg's like, but Egg's like his dead daughter? You know, he's like, <laughs> it's kind of mocking Dunk for this. Yeah. He's not, what do you mean a lord's daughter? He's not even a lord. It's like, I know, do you want a clout in the ear? And Egg says, I'd sooner have a wife than a clout. <laughs> or, no, I'd sooner have a clout than a wife. Or a so dead wife, actually, yeah. Especially a dead wife. Yeah. <laughs> and then before, before Dunk can like get mad again, he's like, oh, the water's boiling. Uh, come on, we got to get the, the kettle now. <laughs> I wonder, uh, there, uh, I guess maybe it's in there. Uh, I kind of want to make a boiled egg joke, but he never actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does have the layers peeling from his head. And he's like, well, if he doesn't wear his straw hat, he's going to look even more ridiculous. And I kind of, it's like George almost made that joke, but he didn't, yeah. he didn't quite. Yeah, uh, so a miss. He had a couple opportunities. And re- referring to the quote you just pointed out, Sean, I have this in the document as well. Eustace thinks, because Eustace is a guy that, thinks in terms of individuals, in terms of heroes, and in terms of like, rather than in terms of like law and justice, he thinks in terms of ideologies and, and heroic deeds. And like, cause he comes from a martial tradition. That's, he sees Dunk and knows what he's going to look like and pictures how he's going to be received and how he judges the man as a, as a, as a warrior. And he says, I am no mean judge of men and you are the true steel, which I think that's a Westerosi expression. Uh, it comes up in a few other places. For example, I'll read this first one. Varys says to Ned about the current Kingsguard at, in Game of Thrones, of these seven, only Barristan Selmy is made of the true steel, and Selmy is old. And then Barristan Selmy says to himself in A Dance with Dragons, Sean, The Dornishmen were knights, at least in name. The only Ironwood impressed him, impressed him as having the true steel. Drinkwater had a pretty face, a glib tongue, and a fine head of hair. Now, remember that the fine head of hair was part of our connection to the sun-streaked the, you know, Dunk and, and Gareth Drinkwater. But uh, that's, that's mm, not actually yeah. directly re- related to this, but I thought I'd mention that. Keep that part of the quote in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, uh, Don, Donald Noy, probably the most famous true steel quote of all, says this to Jon Snow, and here it is. Also worth noting, Donald Noy is sort of a warrior mentality, right? That's so, true, yeah. Robert's ability as a king, he's not making comments on here just as a warrior. Good point. Robert was the true steel. Stannis is pure as iron, black and hard and strong, yes, but brittle the way iron gets. will break before he bends. And Renly, that one, he's copper. Bright and shiny, pretty to look at, but not worth all that much at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, That's a really great, I don't know, comparison. Right? You know, <laughs> analogy, yeah. yeah. It is really good. And... That's uh, that really says a lot about this this moment here because it's if you take what this phrase means and someone like Eustace what he would mean by it that's a really like, I mean, this is one of the biggest compliments a guy like Eustace could give I think you know given given what we've learned about him and given the perspective we've tried to ascribe to him and what the way he looks at the world that's about as good as you can get this is the kind of thing he says about Damon Blackfire the man that like I he idealized as like the perfect knight. So someone you would be proud to follow, someone that looks a warrior, someone that stands tall in battle, all these things. Uh, with regards to magic and Sam Stoops' wife and this phrase that 
the Lord of the Seven Hells is mentioned in that quote. Let me find it again real quick. She says, uh, Sam Soups' wife says she sold her babes unborn to the Lord of the Seven Hells, which is, you know, she's, refer- he's, she's referencing how Lady Rohan's never had any children. They've all been stillborn or, or what have you. But that phrase, Lord of the Seven Hells, it sounds like the devil or something like that. But this is never before or after repeated. That phrase. Hmm. Uh, Nina writes, this is a, uh, it might be the stranger, but it's never called that anywhere else. So it, she suggests maybe it's a bleed over from an older religion into local faith practice, like in these parts, like maybe there was some sort of devil type figure in this area of the reach or just this is part of the country that's still a, a relic of those past times that they still think of it that way. Um, sort of like the spirits of the air or the different parts of the, like in Cracklaw Point, they talk about different beings that live there, like the squishers and things like that. Different superstitions that are not accepted by the faith, but still maintained in certain local areas referenced by the common people, even if they don't specifically worship that God or believe in that superstition, there's still, I can't believe I can't come up with one with right now, but I'm, there's a million things Old that we might reference. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, even if we don't specifically believe in them or even know their origin, but we still use the phrase, you know. And it, it relates very much to what the, the things we were talking about with like Danelle Austin and say when Brienne and Jamie are talking about it or, or, or when Brienne gets to maiden pool, I think it is. And they say, oh, that shield, you know, it represents Lady Ro- or Lady uh, Donnell was sending bats out to steal children and bring them back to her cook pots. And it's like, what? <laughs> what kind of a, really? I don't, I don't know. Did that really happen? I don't think so. But uh, these sort of rumors about how these things work and, and old wives tales is the phrase I just used, but also just like the, the story that parents tell their kids to get them to behave at night. You know, oh, the squishers will come get you. Uh, Dagon Greyjoy will come get you. That's, we, we hear about Dagon uh, as a contemporary during this time. And later we hear about how the mothers on Fair Isle, which is really near the Iron Islands, will tell their kids, you know, if you don't go to sleep, Dagon Greyjoy will come to get you. <laughs> so it's the same kind of, like Dagon Greyjoy was a real person, but it's the same sort of thing where whatever scares people, they use that <laughs> as a, to scare their kids at night. That's kind of actually kind of awful when you think about it. But <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys, as anyone in the chat, anyone seen that meme, that joke, where some of this mother told her kids that if they don't clean the leopard will come and it's just her and like a full body suit, like a green man suit that like covers her head. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm going to put it in the chat. It's ridiculous. Okay. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty wild. (laughs) Dornish Dame says, I wonder if given when the sworn sword came out, George was trying to figure out how to write rumors of Danny reaching Westeros in the main series and how distorted they were. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think there's some signs of that already in A Clash of Kings just because of some of the bits. But maybe more of it starts in A Storm of Swords, which would fit because that's in between the two. And then even more after that, because after A Storm of Swords is when The Sworn Sword came out. So I think, yes, I think almost certainly because he has to have been thinking about that, knowing he's been planning on that for a long time. And these these things overlap here. So that's a good catch. Uh, anything to add to that, Sean, or any other final thoughts for today? I, I'm going to retrieve my final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> retrieve your final thoughts? It's a kitten. Oh, of course. 
I should have understood what that meant. <laughs> cat time. We do love our end of episode cat visits. So, folks, next time we'll get to the visit to Cold Moat. We'll see Lady Rohan and have a lot to say about her. A lot of buildup before actually getting to her, but that's the way the story is framed. And we'll continue from there, see how far we get. I suspect, just like the Hedge Knight, this will take four episodes. We've, we've, we're about halfway through the story, and we've covered about half of what we want to cover. So that's probably how it's going to work. We'll continue on with that plan and see where it takes us. No kitten yet? Still trying to find. They're hard to find sometimes, I suppose. Yes. Kittens, oh, that's kittens the don't sound the way you of want. kitten coming. Let's find out. Which kitten is it going to be today? That's for oh. everyone to try to guess each time. Oh, which kitten is it? It's a calico. Oh, it's Cora. Yeah, I can Cora. always tell. Well, now as they get bigger, the colors tell better. But the face, uh, specifically Cora, has particularly nice, even markings. Yeah, it was originally inspired by Makoro. Yeah. So. With its flame tattoos. Look at her. She's. And if you could see her and uh, and uh, Toph together, you would know. Toph is like pushing six pounds. She's still barely over three. Oh, wow. It's hard to believe they came from the same litter. Oh, she's so cute there. She's looking right at the camera. She's ready to make that jump again. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I forgot she was the jumper. You're thinking about it, aren't you, girl? Uh, well, we leave you again with that cuteness of a kitten. Sorry if you're, you know, on the podcast side and you can't see the kitten, but you know the kitten's there. So you can still uh, imagine it. Or you can go check out the end of the video sometime, and then you'll have a mental image to go with it from from now on. But thanks to everyone who came live to ask uh, to hang out in the chat and submit questions and to make the live experience a lot more fun for all of us, including those of us on this side of the microphone, even though I can't always see everything everyone's chatting about. I always have a little bit of FOMO missing out on our own chat. <laughs> so, Same. Yeah, but hey, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's you gotta, gotta do what we gotta do. You'll miss out on your own thoughts otherwise. I, I, That's a bigger problem. I can't, I just can't keep up with the chat. The, the, if I put any of my attention goes into there, suddenly I already have the time I'm missing where we're at in the document. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to Ashea for doing all those things at once. That is just, just that description there, just right along, tells you even, how hard it is. Even that. if I'm sorry for interjecting sometimes because it is very hard to do. Yeah, you got to take your. What is worth? Your I do go back and watch the video and read all the chat comments. Oh. So anyone who's making comments to me or wants to make comments to me, I, I do make an effort to read all that. So. Oh, I wish I'd known that before I badmouthed you every time. That <laughs> <laughs> she would have good mouthed you instead. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to our thanks to our mods over on the Facebook group for History of Westeros. Um, a lot of us have been geeking out over the new calendar. The 2022 calendar is out now, Ooh. and that is really cool. Yeah, you can find a link to it on our website if you want to order it. That's right. Another reason to check out our website, one of the many ways you can support us is ordering through our links. We get a little bit of kickback from that. Also, thanks to folks participating uh, in the discussion or just joining the community through Flick and Slack and Discord. Uh, thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our excellent video intro and the maps behind. Uh, thank you to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reredis intro music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular History of Westeros intro outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for our sound quality assistance. 
Thanks to our good friends over at Here Be Dragons. I don't know what they're doing today. What are they? Um, I guess we didn't uh, check on them this time. Right on. As I said, next time we'll be... Oh, did you already look? Yeah, they are doing Avatar Season 1. Avatar. Oh, okay, awesome. Right yeah, Sean's going to just I roll right over to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So check out HBD. Not happy birthday. Here be dragons. <laughs> if you get the chance or if you haven't done it, now might be a good time. They cover a wide variety of things over there. So it's only a matter of time before they cover something you're interested in, And they probably already have. Check out their back catalog if uh, you're not an avatar person. But we'll uh, see you all. Or become an avatar person if you're not an avatar Indeed. person. <laughs> you, we just the, the kitten sort of transitioned us nicely into that, right? Cora, <laughs> that's that's a. Is that related or is that a different uh, anime property? I don't know my anime very well. Cora yeah. was uh, the second series, I guess, the second book. I can't remember what they call it, but the Avatar: The Last Airbender and then The Legend of Cora are two different series oh. in the same world, like a, the Next Generation. That's nice. Well, folks, uh, we'll see you all next week for more Valar Rerius.